normally I would say like, wow, that's weird. Like I wonder what was going on there. But like I said, Shaggy had the same exact issues going on. So I mean, I'm not that damn bad as a gamer. <laughs> oh man. <laughs> <laughs> I've beaten some dumb shit, you know? So, um, yeah, it was frustrating. Oh, I thought you were trying to say you're not as bad as Shaggy. Oh, no, no. Oh, damn. <laughs> <laughs> this, this is messed up, man. <laughs> You are now listening to the RF Generation Playcast. The Playcast is the place where the single banana and I, Grego 81 discuss the monthly community playthrough games selected by us and shared by a community of gamers on RFGeneration.com and social media platforms like Twitter. This month, rev up your chainsaw bayonet as we take on the horde in the original cover-based classic that launched a franchise that is still going strong. I'm talking, of course, about Gears of War. We checked out the 360 original as well as the remaster known as the Ultimate Edition. Is it worth going all the way back to the beginning of this legendary franchise? Stay tuned to find out. You can listen to the show on Apple Podcasts and Podbean, or just visit rfgplaycast.com. On Twitter, I'm at rfgplaycast, and Rich is at the single banana. Most importantly, be sure to log on to rfgeneration.com to discuss the games with us and have a chance to get mentioned on the show. Thank you as always for listening, and now, on with the Playcast. Think is nothing might be something after all. Now you know. This- 
keep my arms off the table tonight and my knee from shaking. I'm sure I'll pick up like every sound in here. How pissed off at yourself were you when you were editing the last episode? (laughs) Uh, It wasn't too bad, but I did notice some things in between some tracks when I was talking and it did irritate me. So uh, I'll do a better job this time. Yeah, if you can tell, I'm recording in a different room tonight. It's much more echoey, if that's even a word. I've got my wife and two of my kids, one out of town and one at a friend's house. And so I'm here with my youngest child, who will probably interrupt us before too long, I'm sure, and we'll have to edit that out. But uh, I feel like a snail sliding across a razor blade. Oh, that's an odd analogy. And... uh it's all right. Hopefully, <laughs> if you get interrupted, it'll be at the same time that I get interrupted because I'm having my groceries delivered at some point during this uh, conversation. So I will have to take about a five minute break to help my wife put the stuff away. Well, at least it'll make our listeners feel like they're more at home. Right. <laughs> you may hear the tic tac of uh, dog claws across the hardwood floor in this room as well. Oh, okay. I took the collar off so I wouldn't have to hear the jingle jangle of my uh, tiny mutt. Nice. But tis the season, man, and uh, it's getting very close to Halloween. And uh, around this time, I always do my movie film festival. This year, due to COVID, we've been doing it outside in my driveway had some great fall nights, and so we can kind of space out with neighbors and friends that come over, and it's been really, really awesome. Um, I've got one of those big blow-up screens and a projector. My wife got me the screen for Christmas this year, and I had a projector. I think I bought it on Prime Day like two years ago, and so we've been showing these films, and it's actually been a lot more fun this year than just kind of sitting in the house, you know? Yeah, that's awesome. I've always thought about bringing my projector outside, but I just am always too lazy and I'd, you know, I just fired up in the room that it's in. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, But that sounds like a lot of fun, honestly. Yeah. It's really nice. And once you get the hang of the setup, it's not bad at all. I mean, I can get everything up and plugged in in like 10 minutes. The screen is self-inflated. You plug it in. It blows up, and then you snap the screen on, and then you just pull your audio stuff out there, and uh, you're all good to go. It's really not tough. After doing it during October, I think I'll be doing it a lot more, especially during the summers when the pool's open. It'll be kind of fun to have the kids at night and when they have friends over, you know? Yeah, that sounds That is if we get back to those days. Uh, We will. We will. (laughs) So are you watching any horror films right now? I know you're a big fan like I am. Yeah, I am. I actually remembered to write them down this year, too, because I I remember last year we tried to kind of get this rolling with talking about horror films, and I couldn't remember half of the ones I had watched. So um, I started writing them down as my wife and I were watching them. So Nice. One that I saw that was kind of neat was called Tales from the Lodge. Have you ever seen this movie? I have not. Is it a newer film? Uh, Yeah, I think it came out in the last couple of years. Like, it is pretty recent. So it's like a British horror comedy, but it leans way more on the horror and not as much on the comedy. But it is kind of cute and very endearing. And I found the characters very likable. And they're like this group of old friends. And their bond with each other is really, like, well sold throughout the film. Like, their relationships with each other. 
But oddly enough, it's a movie, if you look it up on IMDb or Rotten Tomatoes, like people don't really like it. Like it doesn't have a good set of reviews on it, but my wife and I quite enjoyed it. So nice. I, I don't know if you, you and the missus would like it, but we did. Another one I saw was Halloween 3, Season of the Witch. Uh, yes. Yeah, man, I've been wanting to see this movie. I've been wanting to see this movie for years, man, just knowing kind of what it is. And again, it's kind of the culture here on this show that we like the underdog stuff that nobody else likes. And knowing the history of this film and that it just got totally dumped on just because it wasn't a Michael Myers thing. I thought it was a really cool movie and, and really enjoyed it. I know you, you're you a big fan, right? You've seen it many times. Absolutely. So this is the first time you've seen it. Yeah, yeah. I haven't cool. seen it yet. And I got to admit, like, I'm not the biggest Halloween fan. I totally respect it. And I've seen it enough times to know, like, I understand the significance and all that. But mm-hmm. it's just, it's like one of my least favorite horror movies. I don't vibe with it as much as I do, like, a Nightmare on Elm Street or a Texas Chainsaw for whatever reason. Hmm. Okay. I'm not judging hard. No, it's, it's all right. <laughs> um, and then a couple other ones we watched. We did a little uh, Angelica Houston run with both Adams Family movies. And then uh, last weekend we watched The Witches from, I believe, 1989 or 1990, which The Witches was really off-putting to me and i actually tweeted it out and our friend bill responded that he really likes the movie and that he showed it to his kids but it's one of those movies where as you're watching it i don't know not it's hard to explain like not like in a horror movie when you say they do the wrong thing like they do the stupid thing it's just like every choice that every character makes makes no sense to me and it's almost like a bad dream kind of but the special effects were really good and angelica houston is just Amazing. And the Adams Family movies from the 90s? Are, they're are great. Are of those? Yeah, they're amazing. Absolutely. I feel like I might have talked about this on the show last month, or did I? I don't know. I don't remember that. I, I know the second film gets a lot of crap, but it's actually really good. Yeah, I agree. I thought the second one was really funny. There's some amazing moments in that movie. Um, but the first movie, it was funny. I had this strange experience where I didn't remember having seen the movie so many times it was really weird because i didn't think i had a familiarity with this movie but when we watched it like i remembered every single line of the movie it's like this weird misplaced memory like i can think about like home alone or the first teenage mutant ninja turtles movie i know those films by heart front and back but i didn't think of the adams family that way but when we watched it i was like I must have seen this movie a million times. Like, I know it by heart. It was such a weird experience. Have you ever had that experience where you watch something and it almost, like, digs up old memories that you didn't even know you had? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, I remember watching Kroll several years ago, and I hadn't seen it since I was a child. And Wow. That movie gets a lot of crap, but I watched it so many times as a kid, and I just knew exactly what was coming next. And, you know, just remembered all the scenes it just all started coming back to me and uh i actually have a poster of the movie in my game room i know our buddy kevin hates that film i actually <laughs> asked him to watch it and i think he hates me for asking him to do that but uh I, I think the movie's really cool and i guess i probably just have a lot of nostalgia for it that uh, most people don't but um i've never seen the film witches probably to a lot of people's surprise hmm. and i've also never seen the movie hocus pocus 
I just don't think they're movies that I would like. Yeah, that's interesting. I don't think I've ever seen Hocus Pocus either. And I only watched The Witches. My wife recommended it. Not that she recommended it like, hey, I've seen this before. You would like it. She just said, hey, here's another <laughs> here's another early 90s movie with Angelica Houston in it because we had just watched The Addams Family. So I was right. like, oh, yeah, let's watch that. We were watching like Netflix and said more movies with Angelica Houston. Yeah, you know, something you like that. The next one. <laughs> Plus they're pushing it because there's a remake of it coming out. And the remake actually has Anne Hathaway, I believe, in the Angelica Houston role. So okay. that could be worth checking out because I, I'm a big fan of Anne Hathaway. So mm-hmm. um, yeah. that could be interesting. Maybe a case where the remake is, to me at least, more enjoyable than the original. So we'll have to see. So yeah, up to this point, that's where I'm at. We're definitely going to watch more scary movies over the next couple of weeks, and I'll have more next month, but what have you been watching? Well, what I've been watching mostly are the movies that we're watching this year for the spooktacular, which is what I call it. You know, man, I've been doing this for like seven years now, and it's really hard to believe. Every October, each week, we invite people over for popcorn and, you know, to watch a film. And like I said, we've been doing it outside this year, but we started off the last Tuesday in September and it actually got rained out. So our first film ended up being the first Saturday in October and we watched a film called Trick or Treat. This isn't the same film as Trick or Treat. This is Trick or Treat. Okay, so that's from the 80s, right? Right, right. I think it's 1986. And so it's about this kid who's bullied at school and he's a really big fan of this rock star named Sammy Kerr and the rock star dies in a fire and um, Gene Simmons, who's actually a radio DJ, not a bad acting job in this film, hands him a pressing of this guy's last record. So the kid takes it home and he hates all these bullies and so he starts spinning the record backwards And the demon from this dead rock star comes and helps him take revenge on some bullies, but it goes too far. (laughs) Ozzy Osbourne has a small cameo in this film as well. Oh, nice. It's sort of a retaliation against the satanic panic of the 80s. There is this time, and I, I remember it so well, where churches were telling churchgoers that metal and rock and roll is evil and putting these ideas of these symbols in their head. Uh, I remember my mother coming home and taking all of my hair metal cassettes and <laughs> hiding them from me. Especially, I remember Def Leppard, who she took me to the concert. It was my first concert. But the Hysteria cover, how all the letters are like in triangles, apparently that's a sign of the devil because it's just a pentagram spread around, right? Oh, man. Okay. So it wasn't until high school years later when uh, I found my tapes and my throwing stars from the local flea market on top of the refrigerator and was able to <laughs> to grab those again. <laughs> but uh, yeah, the satanic panic was a real thing and you churches were just going nuts over it. And so this is sort of a response to that. And it's actually a wonderful film. It's really, really well done. For something that I would think was probably low budget, it's good. And uh, I would highly suggest you checking it out. The next film we watched was a film called Killer Party from the same year, 1986. It was pretty good. It was sort of a film based on April Fool's Day, and they were going to call it that. But there was a film of the same name that came out from Paramount around the same year. So they had to change the name to Killer Party. 
it's sort of a slasher film, but the problem with it is, is you don't get to see any of the deaths. There's really no special effects. You'll see somebody swing something and then the screen will just cut, you know, and then you'll see a body on the floor or mm-hmm. it'll move on to another scene. So the story's pretty good, but it was highly disappointing as far as, you know, a horror film, slasher film. And speaking of something nuts, this past week we watched a film called Slugs which is about, you guessed it, killer slugs <laughs> who attack a town because they had been pouring toxic waste in a special site where the, uh, the slugs were eating it and uh, they attack the townspeople and hell ensues. It's uh, a really, really campy film. It wasn't bad, but uh, you know I wouldn't put it at the top of the list. It's a film I refer to as awesome. It's so awful, it's awesome. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, that's great. <laughs> and so we saw that. And then my wife and I watched a film the other night called Night School. And I really enjoyed it because it's one that I, you know, you don't really hear about. But um, it's a North American film, but it's filmed in that sort of style, like the Jallos from Italy, mm. uh, where you have these detectives that are inept and you're trying to figure out who the killer is the whole time. It was really well done and actually had some really good acting in it. And so I would really recommend Night School. It's a fun film to watch. And then next week is a special treat. If you listen to my show, She Hate Horror, my wife and I had a draft where we would draft the movies that we wanted to watch. And the only stipulation and the movie that I was banned from picking was Nightmare on Elm Street, the first one. Okay. Because my wife is terrified of it. Yeah. But during the film fest last year, I got her to watch Dream Warriors, the third in the series. Mm. And so she was like, you know what? That wasn't that bad. And so this year I put the original film on the (laughs) slate. And so we're going to be watching it Tuesday night and everyone's excited. Have a lot of people coming. We're really going to have to spread out for this one. But yeah, I'm very excited about watching this film with her, and uh, it'll be good times, and I'm sure I'll scare the living piss out of her at some point during the (laughs) film, because that's just what I do. such a nice guy. (laughs) And then the last film we're going to watch at the end of the year is going to be Creature from the Black Lagoon. We always do a classic at the end of the year, and I'm actually going to let my 12-year-old daughter watch it with us. It's a classic. Those Universal films were filmed, I believe, in the 30s, but Creature from the Black Lagoon, which gets lumped into those Universal monster films, was filmed in the 50s. Oh, interesting. Yeah, yeah. Most people don't know that. Uh, So that'll be a fun one to watch, and I think it'll be a a nice little soft introduction for my daughter, though she has already seen Monster Squad, which she loves. So it should be fun. (laughs) Nice. (laughs) Speaking of horror, I just experienced a very horrific event. After 43 years... I'm having to get glasses, Sean. Yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah, it kind of stinks. I've been wearing, you know, corrective lenses of one sort of or another mm-hmm. since I was about in fifth grade. I think it was only like two or three years ago that I started wearing contacts. I wore glasses my whole life, so yeah. Then I got contacts, and now I hate wearing glasses. Contacts are like so much better. I can't believe I went so long without switching over. I'm so weirded out about contacts, man. I, I just don't want to do it. That's why it took me yeah. so many Like, you want me to stick a thing onto my eyeball with my <laughs> right. finger? No, thank I, you. So I can't even pour eye drops in my eyes without yeah. blinking. I don't know how in the hell I'm going to put something <laughs> like that in my eyeball. 
are you wearing glasses like all day now? You're yeah. I mean, that was the recommendation. I mean, I can see fine. It's mostly close up stuff that I have blurred vision with, but. There's something about my left eye when they dilated my eyes and I was trying to read the charts. It was just completely blurry. It was crazy. So they've put me on glasses all day. Although when I drive, I don't use them because it's harder to drive with them, actually. Because I get a lot of glare and just getting used to seeing out of glasses that way. So I do wear them in the day, wake up, put them on just so that I can get used to them. I've only had them three days now. So, uh yeah, they're they're pretty cool. I got the uh, black frames, you know, so I uh, look like a uh, sexier Russ Lyman. But uh, <laughs> nah, nobody can pull off Russ, man. Yeah, he's got a a winning smile for sure. And then the last thing I wanted to talk about before we get into our asshole segment <laughs> is that tomorrow is the day that I am hosting the Guilford Geekapalooza, which is the outdoor swap meet. Things are shaping up nicely, man. I've got 33 tables sold out in this giant parking lot. And I've got people coming from all over the state. There have been a lot of indoor conventions that were closed this year. And so people are extremely excited about tomorrow. That's going to be a good thing, hopefully, going forward. I I do hope that the buzz is good enough that we will have enough people coming out. I've seen a lot of buzz on Facebook and Craigslist and the places that I've posted to. And um, I went in a few pawn shops today just to kind of look around. And two of the pawn shops already knew about the event. So it's it's been good. So... um, that does leave me hopeful, but at first I was like, am I going to get enough people to actually support this event as vendors? Now it's more of a worry of, are we going to have enough people to attend to help these people out and to sell things? And I think it's going to be great. Either way, I just wanted to do something really nice for the community, and I posted something about it on Twitter today. I know in Barrie, up in Canada, that uh, Hodge, Nintendo Hodge, who uh, I know you're friends with on Twitter as well, he started that Barry convention, and they've been doing it for years, and I think they do it a few times a year as well. Took some notes from that. It looked like a great event, and uh, you know, hopefully I can do it twice a year like that in the fall and in the spring. So uh, looking forward to it tomorrow, but I am a little bit anxious, so I hope I can sleep tonight. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. I know it's going to be a great time. I wish I could be there, but it should be amazing. I'll take some pictures, man, and uh, if there's anything you're looking for, let me know after the call. Yeah, definitely. Cool. All right. Well, let's move on to things our friends pointed out. (laughs) Sean, do you have anything? I actually don't. Haven't heard from anybody on anything, so we must be clean. Somebody must have installed a hot water bidet for (laughs) us. McAfee. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm sad to say that we aren't quite clean, though we didn't have anything on social media. My neighbor, who always listens to the show. (laughs) Awesome. I love your neighbor. That's so great. (laughs) He's a huge (laughs) asshole. So he said that the show was awesome. He loved it. He's always very complimentary of the show. But he said the one thing that we missed is when we did our movie soundtrack albums that were primarily recorded by one artist or band that we missed the best one of all. And tell me, Sean, have you heard of the movie Hard to Hold? I don't think I have. Good, because this guy's <laughs> like, why have you not heard of Hard to Hold? Everybody knows that film. Nobody knows that 
fucking film. Yeah, I don't think so, man. I don't know. I'm not. I'm not the Good. authority here, but <laughs> I know movies pretty well. Yeah, I mean, I'm just proving my hypothesis here. So, Chris, if you're listening to this, buddy, you're completely wrong. But the soundtrack is done by Rick Springfield. Okay, cool. Yeah, there's that. If you're a big Rick Springfield fan, it might be worth your time to check out the soundtrack of Hard to Hold. And even though that was a bit of a complaint, I think we're still clean this month. So I'm going to go with that. I agree, and I I think we're still clean, notwithstanding that I'm going to give you another one from another one of our friends. Duke Togo let us know that we left out Weird Al's soundtrack for the movie UHF. Wow, that's great. Which yeah, is that's a great, great call out. Totally, mm-hmm. totally good point. So I wanted to put that one on the table as well. Yeah. As big of a fan of Weird Al as I am, I can't believe I didn't even think about that. But, you know, for some reason, when you think soundtracks, you don't think Weird Al, you know? It's <laughs> yeah. not the first thing that pops in your mind, but apparently it is with Chris's mind. So that's awesome. Let's go into this month's edition of the Concert Cast. Now, Sean, I had this idea of doing best albums of the 70s. And I was like, okay, let's do top three or five. I can't remember which I said first. Yeah. <laughs> we kind of agreed on that. And then I started making my list and I was like, there's no way I can only do three or five albums. I mean, we're covering an entire decade. And so I was like, how about 10, Sean? You're like, no, that's no, that's way too much. We got to be a little bit choosy here. And so we finally decided on doing seven for the 70s. So we're going to do our top seven albums of the 70s. And I got to tell you, Sean, 
even with seven, it was hard, man. This was a tough, tough pick for me. How did you fare? So it's probably different for me, and we should go into... Uh, I am older are. than you. I'm old, yeah. I'm only a little <laughs> bit, though. I mean, so my criteria, I mean, it varies, but sometimes when we do these lists, I really try to dive deep and find cool stuff that nobody's ever heard or that that I've never heard is is what I like to do and find stuff that piques my interest and find music from all around the world because when I was younger or up until recently, I didn't realize that such great music could be found from, you know, not just North America. But in this instance, I had a lot of trouble finding stuff that I hadn't heard before that was good. I, I listened to a lot of albums that... I just didn't enjoy. So there's only one like dark horse new like hipster pick in my list. The rest of my list is pretty mainstream, which is weird because, you know, I was born in the early 80s. So I wasn't around for this stuff. But like most people my age, I cut my teeth on my dad's record collection, which was all music from the 60s and 70s. So I grew up with this stuff. My number one pick especially is hugely like sentimental and one of my favorite albums of all time and something I've been listening to since I was <laughs> just a child, literally. <laughs> and uh, it's weird because now I have like a fondness for this kind of music and a very I'm very nostalgic for it. But on the other hand, there's a lot of it that I hate. Like I really hate classic rock and even like the early punk stuff is uh, like really kind of played out for me as much as I love it. When I went back and listened to some of those albums, they didn't have the same kind of brightness that they had when I first heard them. So this should be kind of interesting because I had to really cherry pick albums that still I can listen to. And I made a, a huge, huge Spotify playlist and tried to listen to these albums all the way through and just make sure like, again, I, I don't want to just be name dropping albums to make a list. I want to be able to say that I can still enjoy these particular albums and listen to them front to back multiple times in a week or even in a day and still get the enjoyment out of them that I can call them my favorite. So that was a little drawn out way of kind of saying that my list is going to be kind of different from what I usually do. But Rich, how did you come up with your criteria? Because I should also add, like, we've done albums of years, like specific years. And I said, well, hey, why don't we do that? And you made up a really good point. Like, we weren't around for this era of music. So let's just cover a whole decade, because if we pick some year, we're, we're going to go. It'll be hard to come up with picks. But here we are. Now we're doing the full decade and you kind of had your plate pretty full. So what was your criteria for coming up with your top seven? My top seven, it's sort of a mix of my favorite albums as far as all the way through. But then there are a few albums on my list that I feel like are important albums. And I think they were very innovative as far as music around that time. I'm really happy with my top seven, though I will say there's one pick that I have that I'm like teeter-tottering on. So I'm going to save that for last and hope to God you pick one of the two. Um, so that, that might bail me out because I'm I'm not going to do eight. I'm going to stick to seven and I will have an honorable mention, but I'm really going to be gritting my teeth 
if um, the two albums I'm trying to pick between are there at the end. So, um, yeah, man, I'm, I'm hoping you snag one. <laughs> well, I think we might have some crossover. It's funny, the times when I think we're going to cross over, we don't. And then we have something like we had last episode. And I won't spoil it because I want people to go listen to it if they yeah, haven't. That was an awesome but, moment. <laughs> we did a list and we both had the same number one. And it was actually really cool. So now I'm not I'm not going to worry if we have any overlap or like steal from each other because it actually turned out to be a really awesome moment. So and we got to think about that, too. We didn't specify any time. This was an album that was done by an artist or band for a soundtrack. And it was over the entire scope of time. Right. right. Since music was <laughs> around and we picked the same one. So that is really <laughs> miraculous and uh, really cool and just proves that we have excellent taste. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) So do you want to kick it off, man? Yeah, sure. So for my number seven, this was an artist that I kind of discovered later. One of my friends showed him to me in high school. So this wasn't one that was in my dad's record collection, but it's Elvis Costello. uh, My aim is true. Nice, man. I could have chosen many Elvis Costello albums, but it's his first album. It's the first one I heard, and I think it's almost perfect. There's only one song on it that I don't really like, the song Mystery Dance. And I don't want to talk about the one song I don't like, but it's just like kind of a lame Elvis Presley ripoff. But the rest of the album is really good, like power, pop. And it's not new wavy in a sense that it has tons of synthesizers. There's very little of that. It's mostly like guitar and piano. It's like a really sophisticated, sophisticated take on new wave and i really love that album and it starts off so well welcome to the working week is one of the best album openers of all time i think it just really hooks you in right away absolutely man fantastic album if you remember i got to see elvis costello last year and it was one of the best shows that my wife and i have ever seen even our governor was at the show so that was really cool man (laughs) awesome what is your number seven My number seven is an album by one of my favorite bands of all time. And I'm probably going to catch hell for this pick because I'll have a lot of people who either won't agree with me because they're fans of other albums. But I think a lot of people really haven't heard this album. Pink Floyd is one of my favorite bands of all time. I could listen to their music all day, every day. I mean, you give me the Beatles, you give me the Stones, you give me Led Zeppelin, any of those bands. And Pink Floyd, you ask me which one I want for a desert island, you give me that Pink Floyd discography all day. They're one of my favorite bands of all time. But my favorite album by them isn't Dark Side of the Moon, it isn't The Wall, which are probably their most acclaimed albums, but my favorite album is Metal. I love that album so much. It's just a fantastic, beautiful album. One of the tracks even takes up an entire side of the record. It's just a beautiful, beautiful listen. There are these really abstract songs that Pink Floyd is known for. And then there's a song about a dog named Seamus, which is a great song too. Uh, so if you've never heard metal, that's one that I highly recommend. And a lot of people haven't heard the album Animals either. And that's also a very, very great album for those of you who do love Pink Floyd, but want to do a deeper dive. 
Nice. That's a good pick. I've told you this before, even though I say I I strongly dislike classic rock, Pink Floyd is the only band that kind of Mm -hmm. fits into that category that I think is worth a damn because Roger Waters as a lyricist, you know, he's just a great writer and Pink Floyd, they're singing songs about like deeply personal stuff. And you realize that when you listen to it, it's not just, you know, how many groupies he or whatever he's he's talking about (laughs) you know deep stuff so there might be some pink floyd deeper on my list all right i'll go for my number six here so this is the one i picked that i've I've never heard this before and i actually heard this album today (laughs) for the first time cool i listened to it four times in a row and then i listened to it more when i got home today and then I watched some YouTube videos of the band, and I'm in love. I think I have a new favorite band. <laughs> Not a, truly a favorite band, but like it's, it's just a really cool discovery, a cool album. And they have one other album, so I'm looking forward to listening to it. So the band, if you look at it spelt and you pronounce it in English, it's Edith Nylon. But they're from France, and they have a title track of their self-titled album, is Edith Nilon, and it's about like this robot woman. So they're a French punk band, and they have a female lead singer, and they just blew me away. I listened to this album, like I said, front to back many times in a row today while I was at work, and I just couldn't stop spinning it. So this is my like kind of weird out of left field pick, and I want everybody to go check it out. I found it on Spotify just by browsing around kind of obscure punk bands from that era and i'll say now that i took the time to listen to a lot of bands from that era that i missed the first time around and like i said unfortunately a lot of them just kind of didn't do it for me but for some reason when i listened to edith nilon it just blew me away such a good album so i would recommend that one so that's my number six. Never heard of it. Yeah, I'll have to look at that one. All right. So what's your number six? All right. Number six for me, when I was in college, I uh, went to a party and um, I got pretty hammered with a good friend of mine. <laughs> and, and I remember him putting on Miles Davis's Kind of Blue. And I had always like thumbed my nose and hated jazz and... I was just in a state where I was just really paying attention to it and just fell in love with it. So from there, I just sort of branched out and started listening to a lot of jazz. I even bought a book called The Playboy Guide to Jazz, which was done by, you know, the magazine Playboy. But they have some really good writers that cover music and they had an entire book of jazz. And I started just kind of handpicking from that. And later on, when I got into grad school, I started listening to more of the fusion jazz albums as I really explored Miles Davis. If you don't know what fusion jazz is, it's just like really quirky and abstract, but still done with jazz instruments. But I didn't pick a Miles Davis album. I actually picked my favorite fusion jazz album from this era, and that is Herbie Hancock's Headhunters. If you've never listened to this album and you enjoy even like electronic music, but don't have a love for jazz, I highly recommend that you listen to Herbie Hancock's Headhunters. It is a fantastic album all the way through. Very experimental, very cool, and really changed the way that I felt about jazz music. I always felt like it was so 
polite, you know, and stuffy. But this stuff is just really abstract and angry and whimsical at times. And uh, it's a fantastic album and one of my favorite, if not my favorite jazz album of all time. And that says a lot. Nice. That is a genre I've never really gotten into, but I would be willing to check that out. Yeah, check it out, dude. I know you like electronic stuff, so uh, you'll love it. Awesome. Well, let's roll it into my number five here. So (laughs) this is an interesting pick because over the years, like I never really liked I shouldn't say I never liked them, but I never loved the Beatles the way some people love the Beatles. Yeah. And over the years, I've kind of grown this. I'm not saying this to ruffle feathers, but I've developed this love for Paul McCartney that is proportional to my hatred for John Lennon. So I've kind of grown to appreciate Paul McCartney's like solo stuff and the albums with wings way more than I ever liked the Beatles. So my number five is Band on the Run by Wings. Cool. Again, as with Elvis Costello, I could have picked many different Wings albums or McCartney solo albums, but this is the one that I'm the most familiar with front to back, and I just can jam on it anytime I feel. And there's a, just a really good lyric in the first song, Band on the Run, that really reminds me of quarantine. And I posted on my Instagram <laughs> stories where he says, stuck inside these four walls, sent inside forever, never seeing no one nice again. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but this is just a great album. It's very dynamic. Even the first song, is it's kind of long and it takes you places and it, it really jams. And it's a very good like sing-along album. When I have this on in the car or... When I have it on at work, <laughs> you you can ask Corey. I'm sure he's listening right now. Uh, Corey knows me to sing Let Me Roll It at the top of my lungs <laughs> at work. And uh, I just think this album is a really, really good, fun, like, sing-along album. And I love Paul McCartney. I just, I think he's amazing. Yeah, that title track, man, The Changes and that song are yeah, unbelievable. I mean, you go from place. one world to the next, you know, yep. and it's like, how does that work? But it does. I mean, it's, yep. it's brilliant. Great pick, man. Awesome. So what's your number five? Well, like my other picks, this one also has a story to it. Several years ago, my uh, great-grandmother was uh, in the hospital with pneumonia and didn't really know if she was going to make it or not. You know, I was I was really close to her. And so one of the things I do with music, a lot of times when I'm down and out, I'll go and I'll find an album that either, you know, I've listened to or maybe something I haven't before. And um, I went and I picked up this album. It really, it always reminds me of her. The title track on this album, Pink Moon, is one of the best songs ever. This guy, I think, only made three albums. Uh, his name's Nick Drake. He died at a very early age under some really sad circumstances. But the three albums that he put out are really brilliant, very folky and whimsical, and just incredible. And to think about the things that he could have done had he been alive for a longer time reminds me a lot of like Elliot Smith, who put out some fantastic stuff before he passed through very similar circumstances in the early 2000s. So uh, if you've never listened to Nick Drake's Pink Moon, that is 
one of my favorite albums of all time. And that's another that I highly recommend. Nice. I'll have to check that out. I'm not familiar. I've heard the name, of course, but I'm not familiar with the music at all. All right. So let's move on to my number four. So this was one, (laughs) this one I got to shout out my mother. May she rest in peace uh, for bringing this album into my life. I remember my mom wanted to buy this album. And for whatever reason, you got to remember like in the early 80s, if you couldn't find something like this, like an album on vinyl or a cassette or whatever, there wasn't much you could do if you couldn't find it at your local store. I mean, we weren't savvy enough to like get a catalog or like order it from somebody. This is a pretty mainstream album. So I don't know if my memory is a little bit fuzzy or whatever, but I remember my mom like having a hard time finding this on cassette. And I remember when she finally did, I was having like trouble getting it to play in her car stereo and she was like freaking out about it. (laughs) But uh, when we finally listened to it for the longest time, I thought it was the corniest shit ever. But now it's one of my favorite albums and it's not just the nostalgia of my mom or whatever. It's a fantastic, phenomenal album. And uh, it's Meatloaf, Bad Out of Hell. Yeah, man. Nice. So when I listen to this now, I can have an appreciation for what it is, which is it's a complete work of fiction. And I didn't view it that way at the time. I thought it was like this corny, like boomer fantasy kind of thing. And I didn't appreciate it for that. It's like a rock opera, you know, it's a fantasy and now that I listen to it, I really love the orchestration of the whole album. It was produced and most of the instruments were played by Todd Rundgren, who's a legend in his own right. And uh, of course, Meatloaf's vocals. And there's all these like karaoke classic songs on this album, like Paradise by the Dashboard Lights and everything else. And then there's really good ballads, like even the slow songs are very endearing and get to your heartstrings like two out of three ain't bad. And uh, and for crying out loud, like it's just such a good album. Even the even the ballads are good. And I can't say that about a lot of older albums. So, yeah, that's my number four. Meatloaf, Bad Out of Hell. Bob's Big Bitch Tits. (laughs) Yeah. I've got a really funny story about uh, Bad Out of Hell. A good friend of mine lives in town. I work with his wife, and we're, we're great friends as well. And um, he has a meatloaf Christmas ornament for his tree, a Bad Out of Hell Christmas ornament that he puts on it every year. Well, his wife hates it, and he knows this. <laughs> uh, one of her friends gave it to him, and um, he couldn't find it last year. And finally found it after Christmas. And she swears that she didn't hide it. But I know she had to, you know. (laughs) Oh, man. That's funny. (laughs) All right. Well, let me go with my fourth pick. And this is a band that um, I discovered in grad school. I really got into the Talking Heads. They're one of my favorite bands of all time. And I started listening to a lot of music from the CBGB era in New York. You know, Blondie. New York Dolls, um, the Ramones, which I had, you know, already been listening to previously. But um, as I dove into it, I came across a band that just knocked me off the floor. And that is a band known as Television. They have an album called Marquee Moon. They only put out a few albums, but Marquee Moon is 
a phenomenal highlight. If you love music like the Talking Heads, it's like really smart and quirky. This is an album that is a must own. I remember being in grad school and us taking a trip for a class up to New York. And uh, I remember going into a record shop and specifically seeking out this album because I was like, wouldn't it be cool if I also bought the album in New York, you know, possibly an album that was owned by someone who had maybe seen them at CBGB's or, you know, was a fan of them at the time. And so I have this album. And a few weeks ago, the record store near me got in a copy of Marquee Moon that had the original demo tapes. And so the songs sound completely different from what was on the album. And it's just really cool to listen to them side by side and and just compare. That's an extremely cool experience. My wife and I both love the band Television and the album Marquee Moon. Great album. That is an interesting pick. I'm going to tell you, this is an album I've listened to a lot and I've tried to get into it, but it just doesn't stick with me. I think the problem is like when I listened to it, I was like, wow, like this does sound really cool. Like the guitar work on it is amazing. And this like kind of squeaky, like singing on it is pretty neat and ear catching. But the song structure itself is not hooky enough for me. Like it's not catchy at all. And you know me, I like pop music. I need a, I need a good hook. I need some catchy melodies. These songs just kind of go all over the place, but they don't, to me, this is personal preference. They don't do anything that just kind of hooks me or makes me want to sing along or whatever. So I'm glad you like it. That's awesome. Yeah, I mean, I admit the songs do kind of go all over the place. I mean, it doesn't sound like a completely consistent album. Mm-hmm. But I, I do think the songs are catchy. I have to disagree there. I, I love it. I, I think it's oh, awesome. That's fair. No, that's fine. Yeah, I think if you're a big fan of Talking Heads, I think that uh, this is a must own. Awesome. All right. Well, moving on to my number three, I'm going to go with The Modern Lovers' self titled debut from 1976. And speaking of The Talking Heads, Jerry Harrison, this was the band he was in before he joined The Talking Heads. So The Modern Lovers is a band from Boston led by Jonathan Richman, who went on to have a pretty successful solo career after, I believe, one or two albums with The Modern Lovers. They weren't together for very long, but I love this album because Jonathan Richman, as a lyricist and as a poet, has this very, like, hard on his sleeve kind of innocent naivete kind of thing going on almost like a Daniel Johnston kind of thing that's very quirky and haunting in his lyrics and I think it's almost like a proto emo kind of vibe coming from his songs and you may have heard like the song Roadrunner is on here The Sex Pistols covered that song, so that might be one of their most well-known songs. Hospital is an amazing song. It's very gloomy, but also like catchy, and you want to keep listening to it. And then there's a really funny song. It's not funny, but it's cute. He has a song called Girlfriend, and the lyric goes... I don't want to sing it, but he's like, that's a girl, friend, G-I-R-L-F-R-E-N. That's a girl, friend. <laughs> it's, it's very cute and kind of funny. And uh, 
there's stuff like that all over the album and it's groovy it'll make you dance and then it's gloomy and it'll make you be gloomy but i love it so modern lovers self-titled is my number three Awesome. Never heard it. I'll have to check that one out. Oh, man, you would love this album. I I think this would be right up your alley, man. Very cool. Well, my next pick, number five, Sean is going to completely hate because this is a classic rock band. (laughs) (laughs) I was a Led Zeppelin fan in high school, but I really didn't explore their catalog until I met my wife. This is her favorite band of all time. You know, with Pink Floyd, I would agree that they have the most amazing lyrics, but I also think Led Zeppelin's lyrics for a lot of their songs are just incredible. They put out a lot of albums in the 70s. It started with Led Zeppelin 3 and, you know, own up from there. But my favorite album by Led Zeppelin, this probably won't be a popular pick, but I love the album Physical Graffiti. It was between this album or Houses of the Holy, and so I had to listen to them front to back a few times, and I had to decide, why is it that I love Physical Graffiti more than I like Houses of the Holy? Houses of the Holy is like hit after hit after hit. But Physical Graffiti, for me, has this very bluesy style to it that is just really, really cool. And everyone talks about how the Stones are like really bluesy. But man, if you listen to Led Zeppelin, those guys really take like those Memphis blues and really work them into their songs. There is such good guitar work on this album. Songs like In My Time of Dying, that is one of the coolest songs of all time. Cashmere has that incredible beat, great lyrics, and my favorite song of the decade, which we will talk about later, is actually from this album. So I will hang on to that for now. Nice. Led Zeppelin is one of those, if you had asked me when I was a kid, I would have had maybe more than one Led Zeppelin album on this list, but they're a band that I just don't have any like connection with nowadays. I don't think I would really enjoy, you know, and again, that's my, that's just my personal taste. I totally appreciate that you're still rocking them. So listen to in my time of dying, just give that one track a listen and uh, it might change your mind a little bit. I can't say that it will if you're set on it, but uh, it'd be a good one to just give a listen to. Got it. All right, so my number two is a band that I actually talked about a lot a few episodes ago. In the episode that we had Metal Fro and Addicted from the Shoot the Corecast, where we did our crossover episode, we talked about what bands you would want to see in concert if breakups and deaths were not a factor. And one of my choices was X-Ray Specs, and they have one proper album in their original lineup, which is called Germ-Free Adolescence from 1978. I talked about it a lot in that previous episode, so I won't go too crazy here, but it's uh, just a fantastic punk album. It has so much energy and just over-the-top pizzazz and panache to it that I love it and I can listen to it at any time. It's one of those albums that it's like, if I don't know what to listen to, but I want something with energy, I'm very likely to go to this album. 
And uh, I, again, highly recommend it. Now, Rich, I know you checked it out and you liked it. So Mm -hmm. hopefully me mentioning it again (laughs) on another episode this time, we'll get people to go check it out because it's just such a great, great punk album. Nice, man. Oh, shit. You've only got one more pick to pick one of the two albums that I don't want to have to choose from. (laughs) Yeah, I'm going to say I probably didn't. Because unless you duplicated a band that you already had on your... Because my number one pick is a band you have on your list, but it's a different album. And then, so, Well, then I'm out of luck. <laughs> 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 All right. So my number six pick is actually my favorite album on this list. And we're on number two, by the way. We're counting, counting down. Well, so. this is my sixth pick. That's your how I've sixth been doing pick it. is your number two. <laughs> <laughs> but it's my number one album well, now, on this list, just to confuse one. people further. <laughs> <laughs> so this is an album by my favorite artist of all time. Because of COVID, we've been having these work check-in meetings once a week. One of our assignments was that we were paired with someone else and we just had to get on Skype and speak with them for 15 minutes. Just take 15 minutes out of our day just to talk to them and learn some things about them. And, uh, you know, it sounds like a super corny exercise, but um, I actually got my boss, <laughs> which is like very intimidating, you know, but um He's a cool guy. We've always gotten along very, very well. You know, we talk about music. He's a huge Jason Isbell fan, just like I am. And so we, you know, we we have a really cool connection with music. And so he was asking me what favorite concerts I've been to were. And finally, we kind of got to favorite albums. And our favorite album of all time is the same album. It's crazy. Just like you and I had that moment where we picked the movie soundtrack. This was sort of this very cool moment between my boss and I. And I was like, yeah, I mean, this isn't his most popular album. And that's what makes it even stranger. Most people would pick several other albums before this one. But the artist is Bob Dylan. And my favorite album of all time is Blood on the Tracks. I know there's several Dylan albums out there, like Blonde on Blonde is probably going to be considered his best album by a lot of people. But Blood on the Tracks does not miss a beat, track for track. It is just such a solid album. And for him to still continue to put out albums and still put out really good albums, uh, you know, just says a lot about the guy and his legacy. If you've never heard Blood on the Tracks or are indifferent about Bob Dylan, this is the album to check out, in my opinion. Uh, and like I said, I know a lot of people might disagree with me, but uh, yeah, that's my number six slash two pick of my number one album of all time. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Um, Cool. Well, I guess it's a good thing we don't have too many overlapping picks. I'm just not, you know, I'm not a Bob Dylan fan, so I don't have too much like commentary there. It's cool that you and your boss connected on that album. That's, that is kind of a rare thing that it would be something out of all the albums in the world that you guys just connected on that, that's yeah. pretty cool. It's awesome. And uh, yeah, I know you don't like Bob Dylan. I get it. But we all have our faults, you know, so I can accept that. <laughs> yeah. 20 years. <laughs> <laughs> nice. All right. Well, I'm going to go to my number one pick. And number seven. Yeah. <laughs> my seventh pick, which is my number one pick. 
So when we did our 2007 albums of the year list, when we had my friend Frank on for our Darksiders episode, I said after much thought and soul searching and that Tegan and Sarah's The Con was my favorite album of all time. And even after reflecting on that a few months later, I still will stand by that. And it got me thinking like, what would be some of the runners up? Like what are some of my other favorite albums of all time? If this album from 2007 could be my favorite album of all time, like what else is out there? Cause I think of things that I would have used to have said was an answer to that question. For example, Led Zeppelin four or like stuff from Nirvana or smashing pumpkins stuff that I really don't listen to that much anymore. But there's an album from the seventies that I've been listening to since I was, I don't know, five or six years old. And I still listen to it a lot. And I listened to it many times in researching for this episode. I still enjoy every note of it. I think it's an amazing album from an amazing group that we've been talking about a little bit here already. And it's an album that you mentioned already. It's Pink Floyd's Animals from 1977. So this is probably my second favorite album of all time because I enjoy Pink Floyd so much. And like you were saying earlier, I love Dark Side of the Moon. I love The Wall. I even like some of the more obscure albums like Adam Hart Mother. I don't know metal that well, Rich. I'm going to be honest with you. I might have to go back and check that one out a little Please bit Please do. Deeper. Yeah, you'll love it, man. But Animals has always, for me, been like far and away their best album. It is hard to describe like how amazing this album is. <laughs> and it's actually filled with a lot of what are to me obscure political references. Yes. Like you actually have to read up on like British political history of the seventies to understand some of the stuff he's talking about. It's animal farm, the album, right? That's true. Like each song represents an animal and it's a metaphor for a class of people at the time in that part of the world, you know? So it's, it's funny that even as, as a kid, I connected with this album and I think what it was is that even though it is a concept album in a sense, and it's about this political class struggle that I have nothing to do with and, and don't really understand, like I can understand it now, but even back then I certainly didn't. But I could just tell that this was an album from somebody who had some deeply rooted sadness and was putting it to paper, you know what I mean? And I could really feel that. Even if he's referencing something specific, there's just so many lines in this album that I could relate to. And it's really weird when you think about what it is, but man, I adore this album. And it's such a weird thing because it's it's like this prog rock concept album. And, you know, I don't like that kind of stuff normally, but this one has just stuck with me from when I was young. And uh, for a Pink Floyd album, like if you take Wish You Were Here, I love Wish You Were Here, but I think Wish You Were Here is very like lush and there's so much stuff. And it's like, I don't want to say overproduced, but Wish You Were Here is very high production. There's something about animals that feels very organic to me. Mm-hmm. And there's plenty of keyboard on it, plenty of guitar effects and stuff. But I feel in a lot of ways, it just sounds like the most natural of the Pink Floyd albums that I'm familiar with. So 
I mean, I could talk about it all day. I just really love this album. I think it's Pink Floyd's best. And I certainly haven't heard every single one of their albums, but I've heard most of them. And this one just stands head and shoulders above all of them. I just love it so much. <laughs> yeah, it's great, man. And um, it was really a toss-up for me between those two. I knew there had to be a Pink Floyd album on this list, but there's just something about metal I enjoy just a touch more. But um, I'm going to just give a few quick stories on animals. I bought Animals on Vinyl at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame up in Cleveland when I went up there for a visit. I had gone up there with a friend to go see Beck and the Flaming Lips on that tour, and we did the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, you know, while we were there. The second story, and what's funny, is how I got introduced to this album. So when I was in college, I was working for this transport company for the university where we would pick up professors from parking lots, take them to their buildings if the parking lots were far off campus, We would pick up disabled or students who had been injured and take them to class. Well, every Tuesday, I would pick up the same guy from this parking lot who was going to the psychology department. He was a professor. And we always would just chit-chat, and somehow Pink Floyd came up, and the guy talked like this. He kind of talked like Louis Anderson, you know, with that type of voice. (laughs) Yeah. So maybe it's Louis Anderson's brother. Who knows? But uh, my Floyd was... I loved them, but I hadn't really explored them yet. He's like, man, you got to check out this album called Animals. It's so awesome. <laughs> so um, that week I went and bought that album and listened to it. And I came back next week. I was like, man, I listened to that. He's like, man, I got to tell you something. I was there on tour and I was on so much acid that <laughs> all I remember is that big pink pig balloon flying around and waking up with paint chips in my mouth. He's like... <laughs> I was so messed up, I was eating the handrails. <laughs> <laughs> so that's my animal story. It's hilarious, but uh, that's how I was introduced to animals by Pink Floyd. <laughs> that's really funny. That's great. <laughs> All right, man, you forced my hand. The two albums I'm trying to decide between are both, I think, very important albums. But I'm going to pick the one that I like to listen to the most. You know, uh, earlier this week, Eddie Van Halen passed away. Mm -hmm. I always hated Van Halen when I was younger. I always would tell people, no, I don't listen to Van Halen. They're just the best cover band around because they covered a lot of songs, you know? That's true, yeah. And then one of my wife's friends that she was in grad school with, her husband and I became really good friends as well. And the four of us hung out all the time. And he would always throw albums at me all the time, and I would just be so resistant, but then I would finally listen to them. He's like, oh, man, you you listen to Van Halen? I'm like, no, man, I, I don't like Van Halen. He's like, dude, you really need to listen to their self-titled first album all the way mm-hmm. through. Yep. And I did, <laughs> and I was fucking blown away. That album is so good from start to beginning. Now, I could probably do without Ice Cream Man, <laughs> but still, oh, there's something funny. awesome and lovable about it, too, you know? Yep. It just doesn't seem to fit, but it does. And if you know David Lee Roth, it completely fits. It's the album that really marked the way for them and where they were going to go with that. Amazing guitar licks. I mean, Eruption is just classic. If you've never listened to Eruption, just check that out. You'll see why people are really sad about the death of Eddie Van Halen. The guy was such an innovator. The finger tapping and uh, the riffs that he threw down. 
I was listening to uh, Scott Ian from Anthrax. They're actually doing a show right now on Channel 27 on uh, XM Radio where it's all Van Halen all the time and they bring all musicians to play their favorite songs. And uh, Scott had this quote about Eddie Van Halen. He said, what I liked about Eddie the most is like he would put down something like Eruption and you would say, rock and roll can't get any cooler than this. And then he would top it on the next album and top mm-hmm. it again and top it again. He was always playing around with stuff. Yeah. Incredible album. And uh, I had to throw it on my top seven, man. Yeah, that's awesome. I, I definitely spun this album a few times in the past yeah. couple of weeks. Not <laughs> only the untimely passing of, of Eddie Van Halen coinciding with our list, I considered putting it on my list, but then I was like, I know Rich is going to put it on his list. So <laughs> I'll be able to talk about it. And I had a similar experience as you, dude. Um, listening to Van Halen was just like, like I get it. They're that guitarish band with that idiot David Lee Roth as the front man. But I had the same experience where somebody was like, no, just listen to Van Halen one start to finish. And I did. And I was like, yeah, that album is perfect. It's, yeah. it's an amazing album. And, uh, you know, it's funny. I, it didn't get me too much into Van Halen in general, but that album, I still can just spin it again at any given time. And, uh, I love it. So I'm glad you brought it to the yeah, list. Yeah. I feel that way about that album. I mean, I love a lot of their other stuff, but this is the one album that I can put on any time. It's good from start to finish. Awesome. was a good list what about some honorable mentions i i really only have a few sometimes i just go hog wild with the uh 
<laughs> honorable mentions, as our listeners know, but I just grabbed a handful here. Um, any David Bowie album, there's so many good ones in the 70s. Uh, Station to Station happens to be my favorite. Harvest by Neil Young, yeah. amongst many other great Neil Young albums, but that's my favorite of his from the 70s. That's just a few that I had. What about you? Yeah, man, I've uh, got several. I'm going to piggyback off of your Elvis Costello pick. My favorite by him is This Year's Model, although I really love My Aim is True. Uh, this Year's Model, to me, has a more reggae vibe to it that's just really cool. The songs like Watching the Detectives and I Don't Want to Go to Chelsea is probably my favorite Costello song of all time. Uh, I, I just love that album front to back, and I have two copies of it on vinyl just because there's two different covers. That's how much of a nut I am about that album. <laughs> um, the other album is a British invasion band that doesn't get a lot of credit, but I think they are extremely strong and have an incredible catalog, and that's the Kinks. Lola vs. Power Man and the Money Go Round Part 1 is an incredible album. It has the song Lola on it, of course, Ape Man, and a lot of other awesome tracks. And it's my favorite Kinks album, hands down, so I had to put it on this list. The Clash's self-titled album is awesome. I know that Combat Rock from the 80s gets a lot of praise because it got a lot of radio play. But I think The Clash is self-titled is among some of their best. Just a band that was able to combine a punk with a sort of reggae vibe and rock and roll. I don't think there's anybody out there like The Clash, nor will there ever be. I mentioned Miles Davis before, and he is really the king of the fusion jazz. And just a few great albums by him. Bitches Brew is a double LP and also a double LP called Live Evil. Both of those are really worth a listen, and also the album On the Corner. There's really not a Miles Davis album that I don't like, but those are some of the best fusion albums. Talking Heads, I could put a few albums on this list, but probably Fear of Music is their best. And then you mentioned David Bowie. I wanted to put a Bowie album on this list so bad, and I almost went with Ziggy Stardust. But the problem with Bowie is that he put out an album every year. If you look at that discography, there's like 11 or 12 albums that he put out in the 70s, a few albums a year. He he was just so prolific, and it's hard to pick. But if I had to pick one Bowie album, and I know this is a bit of a cheat... But I would go with Changes 1, which has all of his like greatest hits on it. Yeah. And he actually put that out in the 70s. And if you're really interested in getting into Bowie, but you know just want to start with a lot of the hits, I would say that is an incredible album to start with. And then the final album, this is the album that I had a problem with not picking, you know, and I had to go with Van Halen self-titled. And it wasn't because of Eddie's death. It was more because it was just a great listen all the way through. But this album is just a seminal album of rock and roll, of heavy metal, and considered by many the first heavy metal album. And that's Black Sabbath self-titled album. It is fantastic. They put out a lot of great albums in the 70s, but... Their tone and the things that they sang about really changed rock and roll music. This is Paranoid's 50th anniversary. A guy did an article on it, and he was like, it's so funny that everyone thinks that Black Sabbath is so evil because it's their tone. But where that darkness comes from is these guys were from 
around the city Birmingham. And Birmingham during the Second World War was one of the cities that was bombed. And so they were still living in squalor. A lot of them didn't have running water growing up. And they really lived a rough life. And that album and all their albums really in the beginning were about the anxiety of growing up in that environment. They're very dark psychologically, but those are the emotions that they were feeling. People try to compare it to devil worshiping music, which is just, it's nuts. You know, if you listen to the words of songs like War Pigs, the songs are more political than they are evil. Just because it has the word Satan in it, you can't make that assumption. But because of the tone, that's what people associated with. And it's completely silly. That's a great point. I think that's one of the greatest songs ever written. And that specific example, they're saying that the warfare state is satanic. That's the ultimate criticism of warfare. And uh, that's a great point that you bring up. I figured one of their albums would make it onto your list proper, (laughs) but uh, I'm glad we were able to talk about them. Yeah, it was hard to pick one album, but I, I really I just went with the first one because nothing like it had ever been heard before. A lot like Van Halen's self-titled album. Though I couldn't put both of them on my list, it's kind of nice to make that feel like an eighth pick. <laughs> nice. Uh, so what about a favorite song of the 70s? You said you had one, actually, right? I do, and it's off of Led Zeppelin's Physical Graffiti. I've always liked the song a lot, but... Um, a few years ago, I got into the show Mind Hunter, which is about the FBI in the 70s. It's a really fantastic show if you've never seen it before. I believe it may be on Netflix, either that or Amazon Prime. But the first season ends with the song In the Light by Led Zeppelin. And it is one of the most perfect film experiences I have ever witnessed. It's amazing. For me, that is the one song by Led Zeppelin I could just listen over and over again. It's just so epic and beautiful. Guitar work is fantastic. Robert Plant's voice is so incredible. That's my favorite song of the 70s. How about you? So for me, I got to shout out another artist that we lost this year, unfortunately. It's Betty Wright. And I think a lot of people would choose Clean Up Woman as their favorite Betty Wright song. From what I understand, that's one of her biggest hits. But my favorite Betty Wright song is Shoo Rah, Shoo Rah from her 1974 (laughs) album, Danger High Voltage, which almost made it onto my list. But yeah, Shoo Rah, Shoo Rah is just the ultimate party banger. I love this song. It makes you want to dance and throw your hands up in the air. And it's so joyous, even though it's this song about this guy who's trying to double cross her. I just love the way it's so soulfully sung and just such a great song. So yeah, Shoo Rah, Shoo Rah by Betty Wright is uh, one of, if not my most favorite song of the 1970s.
All right, man. So should we go into pickups? Yeah, let's do it, man. All right. You want to start us off? Yeah, no problem. So it's funny. One of the first things I got was you mentioned Prime Days earlier, and uh, they had a Prime Day sale the other day. I don't lose stuff often, Rich. I'm very organized. I know where all my stuff is, usually off the top of my head. And I'm the kind of person who keeps things in their places, even if it's like two or three different places. For example, charging cables. I have a box of them in a closet that I know where they are. I have a couple in a drawer in my living room and I have a couple at like a charging station in my game room. Well, I, for the life of me, I lost the USB-C charging cable that I used for my Switch Pro controller. And I don't have any other appliances or devices that use a USB-C, so I didn't have any spares, <laughs> which is kind of, it's kind of weird because they're becoming more and more common. So on the Prime Day sale, I bought a five-pack of USB-C cables. So that's really, really exciting for our listeners <laughs> and for me and you. Maybe your wife got rid of that stuff, you know, like a meatloaf Christmas ornament. <laughs> Maybe, but that, would, that wouldn't be the first thing she would get rid of, I don't think. So in addition to some fancy USB-C cables, I did pick up well, not physical games, but I'd like to talk about a couple more uh, like two cent games I got off the eShop because I like to kind of point those out when they're halfway decent. So on the Switch eShop, I got a game called Swarm Riders. I think it's pretty cool and it's a perfect game to be like five cents or whatever I paid for it because it's really a game you pick up and play for maybe a minute or two and then go on to something else. It's like... You're on this motorcycle. The graphics are actually like PS1 style graphics, which is probably what caught my eye about it. But then it's a twin stick shooter where you move the motorcycle with the left stick and then you just move your aiming with the right stick and these swarms come after you. So you're riding and it's a swarm coming after you, hence swarm riders. And you just try to get a high score and you try to survive as long as you can. So pretty neat game, but it's like, it might turn into something else if you play for a long time, but as far as if it's just that, then there's really no substance to it. Um, but it's interesting and a flashy game nonetheless. And then another one I would recommend is called Adventures of Elena Temple. And it's kind of like a faux museum of games that was made for fictional gaming systems that are akin to like the Commodore 64 or like the ZX Spectrum or ZX Spectrum kind of computers from the 80s and this series of games that you get when you buy the game are like old school platformers like computer platformers like Commander Keen or Prince of Persia or something but a little bit easier to play on a console. This game I know is also available on Steam but I got it on the Switch for like eight cents or whatever. I know I keep throwing out these random numbers, but it's always under 10 cents. That's what hooks me. So Adventures of Elena Temple, it's pretty cool. I haven't gotten like super far into it, but I love the the kind of retro PC aesthetic to it. And it's it's pretty neat. And they wrote up this whole like fictional like biography of the developer and this whole like history of the character. It's It's pretty neat, like the presentation of the game. So that's a few of the games that I've added to my eShop 
shovelware library that are <laughs> actually like kind of noteworthy. So what about you? Yeah, man. Um, I've had a few pickups since our last call, and I'm pretty sure I'm going to pick up a lot of shit tomorrow at this swap meet. Right. You would be proud of me if you see all the stuff that I'm getting rid of in my collection. I'm getting rid of all of my Mario Party games on the GameCube. Ah, good for you. Uh, Smash Brothers <laughs> on the GameCube, which I just don't play. I don't like fighting games. These are just games that I've had because they're popular. And Same thing, bro. I got rid of all my Smash games because I'm like, I don't even like these. Why do I have them? <laughs> right. <laughs> I kept the N64 one and I kept the Wii U one because my son has the Wii U in his room and he enjoys playing that. Oh, yeah. But GameCube stuff is just going for so much right now. So those are going to be on my table tomorrow and getting rid of several other games too, PS2, Wii. For me, I really love the retro stuff the most. I'm just really kind of wanting to make those collections better, you know? And I'm so into my PS1 right now, and I'm trying to finish out that collection. I'm not going for a complete set, but... There's probably a list of maybe 10 more games that I'm looking for to kind of round it out. You know, that that's a system I love and a system that I know I'm going to play. So, yeah, you're rubbing off on me a little bit. So. Good. <laughs> but I'm not going crazy. I'm not getting rid of everything. My first pickup is a Genesis game. It's called Caliber 50. This is sort of like an Akari Warriors type game, if you're familiar with that. It's on the Genesis. I had a loose cart and I was able to buy a box copy because I really do love the Genesis clamshells. And uh, I'll be selling my loose copy tomorrow at the Swap Meet event. I also picked up a boxed Sega 3D glasses. Awesome. Yeah, it's really cool. It was in a display case. And, you know, I have a complete Sega Master System set. And I had this bogus pair of 3D glasses where the earpieces were broken off of them and somebody had put bolts in the side of them and tied a piece of elastic to them so that they could still use them. It was really crazy looking, but my buddy who owns the game store in town actually just gave them to me, which was really, really awesome of him to do. And so because of that, I'm not selling them tomorrow. I actually gave them to my neighbor. He and his son have been collecting games together. But yeah, I was able to add those glasses to my collection in the box, and it looks so sweet sitting up there with my uh, box games. It's really awesome. And then the rest of the stuff I picked up was PS1 stuff. And uh, man, I was able to pick up some heavy hitters, you know, selling some games. And uh, I got Eggs of Steel, Persona 1 and 2, Carnage Heart, Darkstalkers, Azure Dreams, Tactics Ogre, and Vanguard Bandits. So... Those are some pretty significant <laughs> titles, and uh, I was able to knock most of those off the list because a guy who is somewhat local is just getting rid of his collection, and I got some smoking deals on these games because they are going for a lot right now. I did one deal with him and uh, got Persona 1 and 2, and then he said, I've got some more PS1 stuff if you want to see it, and so he sent me some pictures, and uh, there were several more that were on my wish list, so I just... Went ahead and snagged those up as well. Those are my game scores. But I do have one other score that I want to mention. And I know you saw this because I put it in our Slack thread and I also put it on Twitter. But our good friend Pocky X did a commission painting for me. I asked him to do a Parasite Eve piece of art 
for my game room, which actually I'm going to put in this new room where I put up my TV finally. If you haven't seen that, you got to go to Twitter and check that out. It is the most beautiful things that I've seen. I love Tom's style. He has such a wonderful style. He does commissions every once in a while. They're very reasonable. Just a fantastic guy. If you get a chance to check him at at the Pocky X on Twitter, check out some of his work. And if he's doing commissions, I say jump on it because he does some fantastic stuff. Definitely. I love his artwork and I love the piece that he did for you. It's amazing. Mm-hmm. All right. So let's jump into games. Do you want me to go first? I know my list is always shorter than yours. <laughs> You're going to keep saying that no matter how many times it's not true, right? <laughs> no, it's it's very true, especially this month. <laughs> I think the only game that I really played was just something out of uh, frustration, let's say, with our game of the month, which we'll talk about a little bit later. Of course, I played more Battle Cats. I'm still on that. Nice. And uh, it's just so fun and quirky. And there's just all these Japanese things. Now they're doing like a team up with some Japanese cookie company that has like these weird ass samurai characters. <laughs> it's, it's just really neat. So uh, I, I'm still playing that, collecting cats, battling it out. Yeah. And then um, I actually played a game that I picked up a few months ago, which was Burger Time Party. This is basically the same Burger Time game as the original that was on the arcade. You can actually play the original arcade on the Switch. But there are a few different things like conveyor belts and switches and stuff like that where you can create bridges or take them away or move faster or slower. And so it's not only different graphically, but it also is different gameplay-wise. As I mentioned before, the artwork's kind of cool It reminds me of Cuphead, those sort of evil cartoon looks. So it makes the game a lot more fun. The um, pepper in the game that you can use in the original arcade, you were only able to use like maybe three and you could collect it along the way. The pepper in this game, you can use it and it's on like a timer. And so that's just a little bit different aspect of this in gameplay. I like it. Uh, I don't know if I like it as much as I like the original Burger Time just because it's such a classic but it's still worth picking up if you're a fan of uh, the Burger Time arcade game and some of its other ports. That's it, man. That's all I've been playing. That's cool. I only have a few here. I continue to try to get through One Person Story, which is another eShop game that I talked about last month on the show. It's that puzzle game that's just getting really hard, but it's one of those games that If you get frustrated by a level, you just got to quit the game and go to it later. And then you'll probably beat it on like your first try. It's one of those type of games. So I'm still trying to work my way through that. I'm in like the 70s as far as like what level I'm on. And there's 100 levels. So I'm getting there. And then I picked up my PSP, believe it or not. And I've been saying for the longest time that if you have a modded or hacked Vita that The Vita is the best way to play PSP games, but I actually was selling one of my PSP games and I had charged up one of my PSPs to test it. And then I just kind of was poking around what was on my memory card and I decided to start playing this game called Hexes Force, which is a Atlas published RPG. I don't remember off the top of my head who developed it, if it was Atlas or not, but I don't think it was. But anyway, uh, what appealed to me about this game is that 
There's this YouTuber I like called Eric Landon RPG, and obviously he does an RPG-focused YouTube channel. And he's talked about this game a lot and praised it for being kind of short, kind of casual, not too challenging kind of thing. You know, like all the things that I'm looking for in a game, basically. It's like almost like Resident Evil 2 in a way, that there are two main campaigns that differ slightly. But from his reviews of the game, he has said, like, if you play one campaign, it's cool, like, if you want to go play the other one, but the endings are very similar, if not the same. I can't remember exactly what the wording he used. So he said, if you beat one of the campaigns, you can consider yourself having beaten the game. So I took the female protagonist, and I'm doing a playthrough of that game. It's pretty cool. It's like a turn-based RPG it's one of those ones where you can see the enemies on screen as you're going through the world. So it's not random encounters. And there's this neat system where you pick up a lot of weapons and you can switch weapons every turn. Like you can use a different weapon each turn and you don't, it's not about equipping them and taking your turn and that equips them. Like every time you attack, you can choose what weapon you want to use. So these weapons that you get, except for your main weapon, the the weapons all have like limited usage. So you can only use them a few times and then they go away. I don't know what the word is they use for it, but that's a pretty cool aspect of this game because you can strategize. Of course, there's like a system of strengths and weaknesses that all your enemies have. So you want to pick a weapon that will do more damage based on their elements or whatever it's called. So it's a pretty cool like extra layer on top of a traditional turn-based battle system plus it's just like a cutesy anime game and everybody knows i love those so yes, i'm enjoying did. it quite a bit yeah <laughs> no it's uh it's it is in my like comfort zone as far as games go so i'm i'm enjoying it quite a bit nice but that's all i'm playing besides uh fatal frame 2 basically nice well, once again, I've skipped our news segment, so we can kick it back to that if you don't mind. Typically, I would just say, you know, we could probably just skip it this month, but there was some really, really big news. And uh, that was the Bethesda buyout by Microsoft. So I'm curious to get your thoughts on that. Yeah, it's interesting. Microsoft tends to have a better track record of taking care of studios that they've purchased counter to somebody like an EA who has a reputation for just smothering and destroying studios that they've purchased. So I hope nothing but the best for this uh, situation. Of course, there's the exclusivity issue, but we talked about this last couple of months how we're not the types to like jump on a new console or the new consoles when they come out. But in the end, I eventually get them all. So Whatever, you know, Xbox series I end up getting, uh, you know, I'll be able to play hopefully Fallout New Vegas Part 2 or Outer Worlds. Well, Outer Worlds is uh, Obsidian, which they already own, but like a Fallout 5 or whatever it is, you know, from Bethesda, Skyrim 2, Elder Scrolls 8, 9, 10, whatever. But you, I know, Rich, you're not into these kind of games, so I'm I'm actually kind of curious what this means to you. Yeah, not only am I not into those kind of games, but I'm not into Microsoft as far as you know the Xbox <laughs> is concerned. Now, I'll say this: I love Microsoft products, and uh, yeah, I'm a big fan of Bill Gates. I think he's just a wonderful person, wonderful humanitarian. It's just that I've just never 
enjoyed playing on the Xbox. But I think that this is actually a good thing as far as the Xbox continuing to progress and to have more exclusives. My thing with Sony and why I always like Sony is because they have the exclusives that I love. It's the same with Nintendo. They have their own exclusives that have been going on for years and years and years, and they continue to build on that. And so that has always been my complaint about Microsoft. And it's nice to see them taking over a very, very famous studio with a lot of fans and pumping up their library of exclusives. I think it's a good thing for them, and I wish them the best. I don't want to see the Xbox get discontinued or go away. Competition is what makes gaming and other businesses so good. And so as long as we're still gaming and keeping these things around, I'm all for it. So I think it's a brilliant move by them. It's not going to make me go out and purchase an Xbox series And over time, we'll just see how things fall and whether that might be a system that I'll pick up down the road. Yeah, definitely. And you actually reminded me, I had another news item that is this is a good segue into because it's kind of related. I recorded with the Quicksave Club, which I know you know because you were there in the (laughs) chat. (laughs) Echoing, of course. Yeah, but... As I mentioned on our previous episode, I was planning to go on the QuickSave Club to discuss Fallout New Vegas, which is a Bethesda property that was developed by Obsidian. Now both of those entities are (laughs) owned by Microsoft, as we just discussed. But yeah, I got to hang out with Kevin and Josh and Ryan, and it was cool because it was my first time ever doing a live stream and also being on video. So it was an awesome time and that is up on youtube if you want to watch it or if you want to listen to it in audio version you want to be looking for the cartridge club feed episode 177 which is the quick save clubs episode 15 i also follow a quick save club feed but i believe they've just moved it into the cartridge clubs main feed but you can find it somehow and check it out because it was a really fun time and that's a game that is one of my favorites, especially having played through it a second time and diving really, really deep into it and trying to get the most out of it. And then having a chat with those guys about it was a lot of fun. So I would encourage everybody to check that out. If they love the sound of my voice as much as I do, then you can get more of that over there. Yeah, I'll say this. I've never played a Fallout game before. Uh, I knew nothing about those games, but I did watch a majority of that feed. I didn't respond a whole lot. I think my only response at the beginning was, you guys are really scraping the barrel. Who is this Purple Ghost 69, I think I said. That's right. That was good. (laughs) But uh, I listened to some of it, and even though I don't know anything about the game, I really enjoyed the conversation just because it's about gaming and, and learning the different aspects and gameplay elements of this game. And man, you are really, really knowledgeable about that game. And if you love Fallout games, you got to check out that uh, podcast or that video feed. It's really good. Awesome. Thank you. Well, in a quick side of local news, I finally got my 50-inch TV on the wall (laughs) and we are loving it man my kids come in this room all the time i put it up in the office 
I moved all my 360 PS4 and Switch stuff in here. I bought some shelves. That way I could make more space in my game room upstairs. I'm taking over the house. My neighbor Chris said, wonderful accomplishment. Which room of the house do you plan to take over next? <laughs> so, <laughs> so uh, yeah, man, really enjoying that TV. It's just wonderful being able to do modern gaming in this room and relax and keep the family TV open for my wife and I to watch it while the kids come up here and play. Even now, you're the one missing! What you like, you're the one So this month we chose to play Gears of War, and Gears of War is one of my favorite franchises, but we'll get into that in a minute. We'll start off as usual with our question of the month. So the question of the month was, Gears of War popularized the duck and cover shooter. What is your favorite duck and cover that is not a Gears of War game? And I think it's funny that we use the term duck and cover because I don't think that's the uh, that's the proper terminology, but I just went with it because I thought it was kind of funny. Because I'm an idiot and I came up with the question. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's just called a cover shooter. Exactly, yeah. yeah. So uh, we got Adam Bickley. He said, some of my favorites are in the arcade. Time Crisis and Ghost Squad immediately come to mind. Of course, Ghost Squad, we played for our Wii shooter competition a couple of years ago. So we're familiar with that one. Duke Togo at CollectorCast, he said, Can't say I have played many, but Mass Effect 3 combat was very good. And I agree with this completely. I really like Mass Effect 3, and there was a multiplayer mode in that that I really, really spent way too much time playing. Next, we have Metal Fro. He said, it's not explicitly a cover shooter, but Medal of Honor European Assault really requires a lot of duck and cover and was a game I latched onto several years back. See, Josh gets it, duck and cover. Right. <laughs> Kelsey, Crabmaster2000, he says, Vanquish keeps that style of gameplay super fast and action heavy just the way I like it. <laughs> We've talked about playing that game before. Yeah, yeah, we need to get on that. I love that game. So yeah, that's it. That's all we have from Twitter. We asked this question a little bit on short notice, so appreciate the people who hopped on and gave us quick answers on this one. 
And uh, I'm going to tell you mine. I have to look it up real quick. (laughs) (laughs) So what's yours, Rich? Do you have one? Well, you know, I'm fairly new to this genre. This is the first time I've ever played Gears of War. And I kind of like where Adam went with the arcade shooters like Time Crisis and Ghost Squad. I thought that was kind of a creative way to look at cover shooters. You know, you could even look at something like Space Invaders as a cover shooter because you do have barriers that you have to shoot around. It's not the same style, but I think that a game that I really like that's sort of in that same vein of having to hide behind things. However, like in a 2D mode is Rolling Thunder 2. That is one of my favorite games. Definitely the best Rolling Thunder out of the three, in my opinion. We actually did play that a few years ago for our December Run and Gun competition, and it was the game that I probably enjoyed the most. It's probably not the type of game that we're really referring to when we say a cover shooter because it's more of a third-person cover, but that's my experience, and that's what I've played and just haven't really played any other cover shooters except maybe 50 Cent Blood on the Sand, which I really love, but that is the type of game that forces you out of cover more than being in cover, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Man, I got to play that game again. I, <laughs> <laughs> that game is so much fun. I haven't played it in a while. And if any of our listeners have never played 50 Cent Blood on the Sand, check out our episode. We gave it a glaring review. It is a fun, fun game. You might not think it would be by looking at the cover of it, but uh, it's actually a kind of a tough game to find. But uh, yeah, lots of fun. Yeah. So for me, I'm going to call out a pair of games that I've talked about on the show before, and it's the two games on the Wii that were produced by Next Level Games. One is Tom Clancy's Ghost Recon, and the other one's Transformers Cybertron Adventures. These are games that everybody hates except for me. I love them so much, and... They are third-person cover shooters that you play with the Wiimote as a light gun shooter. So you're controlling a character on the screen and moving them in and out of cover, but you're also doing your shooting with the Wiimote. It's just magical, the, the mixture of those two styles of gameplay. And those two games don't get enough credit, and I wish more people would understand why they're so great. So yeah, Tom Clancy's Ghost Recon and Transformers Cybertron Adventures for the Wii are my favorite cover shooters that aren't Gears of War games. So yeah, so we played the original Gears of War this month. The participants were, of course, you and I. We also had Neo Magic Warrior, Shaggy, and Mr. Stubbs, and Douglas 007. So Gears of War was developed by Epic Games and published by Microsoft in 2006. It was initially an Xbox 360 exclusive, but was ported to the PC the following year. A remaster known as the Ultimate Edition was developed by The Coalition and released in 2015 for the Xbox One and in 2016 for Windows. The original game was a massive commercial success, becoming the fastest selling game of 2006, the second most played game on Xbox Live in 2007, and the sixth best selling 360 game in general. 
Now, Rich, I don't know if you know this, but Epic Games is headquartered in Cary, North Carolina. Do you know where that is? Absolutely, I know where that is. That's where Limited Run Games is as well. I had no idea that Epic was here. That is near the Raleigh area, which is central part of the state. Cool. So Epic Games has a pretty well-known and robust history. They came up with the Unreal Engine, which is still used to this day to make many, 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 many of the video games that we all know and love. They made the series Unreal, amongst many others. Then the Gears of War series was very popular and successful, as I just mentioned. And last but not least, they developed something that you're very familiar with, a little game called Fortnite. So they are pretty successful as a publisher, developer. There's a good history, and I was going to go deeper into, like, there was a little bit of a personality with the producer of this game, Cliff Blazinski. Back in the day, you know, people called him Cliffy B. He was one of these... Back then, he was kind of like the face of the franchise or the face of Epic Games. He left the company in 2012, but they obviously have continued their successful run with Fortnite, one of the biggest games in the world right now. And uh, they have a, a pretty good history of spawning great franchises. So Gears of War is one of them. We're going to talk about the original game in the series. There's five mainline games to date and a couple of spinoffs. I've played them all, <laughs> but uh, this will be my probably like third or fourth playthrough of the first game. I finished it once here on the Ultimate Edition on the Xbox One, and then I went back and played some of the 360 Edition as well for this playthrough and to talk about it on this podcast. So I have actually a really robust history with this franchise. When I first got a 360, I had this game and I had, you know, Gears of War 2 and 3 as they came out. And me and Jesse used to co-op these games together. We would get up early. I don't know if I've ever said this on the show. I probably have, but he was actually the person who kind of taught me how awesome it is to get up really early in the morning, even on weekends. Because you can get so much done in that time, whether it's reading or gaming or exercise or whatever, and you just feel so accomplished, like you're done doing things by the time most people aren't even awake yet. So we used to get up at like four or five in the morning on a Saturday and play Gears of War, Gears 2. Hell no. And yeah, <laughs> no, I'm telling you, man, it's the greatest. No, no, it's <laughs> and, not. <laughs> And uh, we beat a lot of these games together, and I have a lot of great memories of that. It's kind of cool going back to the first game to where it all started, because I got to tell you, Rich, we'll, we'll get into, obviously, our opinions of the game. But like going back to Gears 1 after all these years and remembering like Gears 2 and 3, like they just amped up like the set pieces and stuff just to a bombastic, crazy level. So it's kind of neat to go back to what seems like kind of quaint in comparison in Gears of War 1. So... Do you have a history with the franchise? I know everybody knows you're not that big of an Xbox guy. You just kind of you just kind of said that during the news segment. So, have you played this series at all or this game in particular? I have not played this game. I have a slight history with it. A friend of mine several years ago had the 360 at his house. He just bought it. 
my wife and I went over to their place because we would hang out as couples. This was before we had kids. And he was playing Gears of War. And he was just sitting there being a dick, like not giving me the turn or anything. And he didn't have a second controller. I'm sure we would have probably done some co-op play. But uh, I just remember watching it and... It was something like I had never seen before, you know, rolling in the cover and just sliding in the cover. Just the look of it was so awesome and cool. And, you know, the blind firing I had never seen in a game before. So, um, yeah, my, my first experience was, wow, I'm really interested in this, but I'm not going to own a 360 anytime soon. But I'll say this, when I did buy my 360, that was one of the first games that I bought. Because I remembered it, you know, and I have, I think, all the Gears of War, like you said, there's five of them. I don't have anything that's past the 360. Like you said, there's five of them. And then there is a prequel, right, called Judgment, I believe. And then, uh, I don't yeah. know if you've heard about this, I'm sure you had, there's going to be a Gears of War Tactics coming out that is like yeah. an XCOM game. So that should be really cool. I love tactic games and... I might have to check that out. Awesome. Well, before we get into the gameplay, we got to do our story in 60 seconds. Rich, hit us up. Story in 60 seconds. You are Marcus Phoenix, a military prisoner sentenced for leaving your post in a vain attempt to save your father. Your home planet of Sarah has been decimated by a great war over a very valuable resource known as emulsion. It's so war-torn, in fact, that a race of humanoids and their mutant comrades known as the Locusts have taken advantage of this political fissure and infiltrated the planet's subterranea. In its weakened state, they have now taken to the surface to conquer humanity. A militant body known as the Coalition of Ordered Governments, or the COG, has risen up to fight the alien swarm and institute martial law. Rescued from your imprisonment where you were left to die, you were brought back into the cog fold as an expendable locust-killing machine. Your goal is to detonate the light mass bomb under the planet's surface to rid it of the locust, but hordes of enemies stand in your way. Will you complete your mission? And what secret from your past lies in wait? Get geared and get killing. Very nice. I like that. You really frame the story in a way that <laughs> mentally I can run with because one of the things that some of the people in the forum commented on, and I think you commented on it as well, is that newcomers to the series and this first game, it's like there's not a lot of background for the story. Yeah. You're just kind of thrown into it. So that's a good frame for everything that's going to go on here. Yeah, and I don't think that the story is very bold. There's a lot of things that are just kind of said in passing. I mean, I don't even remember why he was in prison. I kind of missed that part. And maybe that's just me. But I felt no, like the story... It's not just you. <laughs> <laughs> but I felt like the story was a little light in this game. And maybe the prequel, Judgment, does a little better of maybe building it up. I, you know, I'm not sure because I haven't played that game. Mm. Uh, you know, I don't think the story's bad. It's just, it's just that, you know, save the planet type story. But I have to ask you, man, the plot of this game reminded me of a specific movie. And I wanted to see if maybe you knew what movie I might be thinking of. 
Uh, I actually have no idea. Dude, this is the same plot as Rambo First Blood Part 2. <laughs> Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. He's in prison and they pull him out of prison to go into Vietnam and uh, rescue these POWs. It's sort of the same story if that story made love to Starship Troopers. <laughs> so, <laughs> right, right. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, man, I, I could not help but to think, man, this is First Blood Part 2. And maybe that's because I watched it with my kids recently. My nine-year-old son, he loved it, you know, because... <laughs> You know, I'm always showing uh, very age-appropriate films to my kids. <laughs> right, of course. <laughs> so, what are your thoughts on the story, man? The story of this game actually reminds me of another game we played. You didn't play, but I played with Floyd way back in the day for the podcast, which was the first Mass Effect, ah, yeah. where you feel like the story of the game is really a prelude to something bigger, smaller part of something that's going to be a way bigger overarching narrative kind of story. Yeah. And I got the same kind of vibes with this game. I've talked about this many times that I like science fiction that doesn't explain things to you like at once and lets you kind of discover things as you go through it. Mm -hmm. And with this game, you're definitely just thrown into the situation. And if you're going to stop and say, well, wait, what, why am I doing this? What's the motivation behind this? Then this might not be the game for you. You know, <laughs> like this isn't heavy rain. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, yeah. Having said that, like, it's cool. Like, it's well-written. There's a lot of good banter and the bonding between the characters is good. A lot of the cutscenes are just, oh, you got to find Alpha Team, and then you got to find this, and then you got to activate that, and then you got to open this, you know? So yeah. it's, like, kind of moving from point A to point B kind of stuff within a quote-unquote narrative, but... If you can just get into it, then you're probably going to have a good time, right? Yeah. And you make a great point there is, is how they kind of set up the game. And there's this element of mystery out there that, you know, you've got to move forward and figure out what's going on. And I would say the first game doesn't even come close to skimming the surface of probably what this mystery is going to be. Because I feel like there's some heavy gonna happen later you know when oh, yeah. i play this game especially with the ending and it reminds me a little bit of like watching star wars a new hope for the first time you know there's some bigger implications and there's some stuff going on that you're going to find out later but you just have to take the snippet that you get when you're playing that game and build on it with the other games which that's a great way to do a franchise if, if you know that you've got a game that's good enough to uh, create a franchise feeding people just little bits of information making them want to play the next game is a brilliant idea yeah absolutely all right, well, let's roll into gameplay. This game is more famous for its gameplay than it is its story that's for sure <laughs> This game is a third person shooter but it popularized or mainstreamed what is known as cover shooting. Not duck and cover, just cover <laughs> on, shooting. Man. Give me my ducks. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> when you're running around the battlefield, you can hold the A button to kind of crouch behind certain objects, and that protects you from taking damage. And you need to do that in order to survive, because if you're just running around running and gunning, you're going to die. So it's not 
optional, so to speak. This was not the first game to do it. There were games before this that had cover shooting, but this was the one that mainstreamed the concept. So let's just stop on this, Rich, because this is big. What was your take on the cover aspect of it? Because we've played, well, I will say we played Uncharted, which kind of took its cues from Gears of War for sure. So even with that like frame of reference, what was it like for you to play with those mechanics? Yeah, I mean, compared to Uncharted... I like this a lot better. I thought it was a lot cooler mechanic. Yeah, you could go up behind things and crouch in Uncharted, but I thought that this game was more action-packed. Just the rolling and the way that you could move the sticks and just slide in behind another box or post or form a cover. I thought it was awesome. (laughs) I just really loved the look of everything that was going on in this game. And it felt like a military game, like stuff that you would do if you were in active combat. Whereas Uncharted felt a little fake. I liked the mechanics. I don't think I ever completely got used to the mechanics. To try to pull off, I would try to do the same motion with the stick and with the A button to pull back. And that made me roll backwards, which got me in trouble sometimes, where all you had to do is to move the stick back to get off of where you were. So I never quite got used to that mechanic, and I thought that maybe matching up with how you stick to something and how you come off of it being the same would have been a little bit better. But Mm -hmm. I'm sure someone like you who's played this game and the rest of the games in the series multiple times, I'm sure you're very used to it and very comfortable with it, and it just feels natural at this point. Yeah, pretty much. And it does get refined as the series goes on. I mean, this game is, I was going to say surprisingly playable. It's not surprisingly playable. I'm, I'm just trying to say it, it holds up Ages very well. well. Yeah, yeah it, it, it has aged very well. And For a game from 2006, it still plays awesomely for, you know, an action shooter, even with kind of cover mechanics that can sometimes be sticky or a little finicky or whatever. Mm -hmm. Like 99% of the time, I knew exactly where I needed to go and was able to move in the way that I wanted to. So holds up very well. Yeah, there's games in 2020 that don't play this well. Right. (laughs) Certainly. So, yeah, I mean, kudos to them. It's, It's amazing. Yeah. So basically what you do in the minute to minute gameplay is pop behind some cover, either crouching or if you're behind a wall, you're standing and you can turn past the cover up and over the cover and shoot. There's also a blind firing mechanic. And I didn't use this a lot, Rich. I wouldn't have even thought to put it in the notes. But did you use the blind fire a lot? Um, I did not use it a lot during the actual game. But I did use it a lot against the final boss. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. That okay. was, um, you know, one of the gameplay elements that I really had to use during that final boss fight. Because like you, I think you probably played it on casual as, as I did too. I mean, I, you know, it's yeah. my first experience with this game. I'm not going to put it on difficult. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I felt like you didn't really have to do that blind firing as you're playing casual. You could still take a few hits and be okay. So yeah, I would always aim and fire, which, you know, with twin stick shooters, I'm still almost as bad as I was in the beginning, though. I'm sure I've gotten a lot better. My nine-year-old son who plays Fortnite just told me I sucked. 
at it. So <laughs> he's man, he's amazing at aiming and playing Fortnite. So uh, yeah, I, I do suck compared to him. Nice. So one of the other unique things about this game is the reloading mechanic. I don't think there's been anything like this. I'm sure there has. You know, whenever I say something like this, uh, you know. Oh, actually, you know, but there's like a reloading mini game in this game where whenever you're not full of ammo, if you want to reload, you can hit the right bumper. And then there's like a meter that goes across. It's almost like the golf meter in a golf game (laughs) where you have to hit the sweet spot. And uh, if you hit this sweet spot perfectly, you get like a temporary power up to your weapon where you do more damage or you fire more rapidly or whatever. And if you mess it up, your weapon jams and you're actually incapacitated for a couple seconds. So I think it's a cool mechanic and I use it to my benefit many, many times. And you actually can feel really slick if you get it right, like a bunch of times in a row. And if you're really like running the table on on your enemies, it's a pretty cool feeling to keep nailing that reload mini game <laughs> and, uh, just going to town and the same token is very frustrating to screw it up and jam your weapon and of course your character is gonna go damn it you know and like smack the gun and it's pretty cool i liked it a lot how about you (laughs) you're gonna die laughing man i didn't even (laughs) know this was a thing until the final boss battle so my damn gun was jamming every time (laughs) oh my goodness I didn't like it once I figured out that you could do that. And and the reason is there's just so much stuff going on. It's such an aggressive game that having to pay attention to a little meter up in the right-hand corner while watching people fire all around you and having to go into different positions for cover, it's innovative and it's cool, but at the same time, it's it's a little irritating. I, I just want to be able to play a game where I can just like fire reload at a reasonable amount of time and then fire more. I don't know. I I think it was just an addition that probably wasn't well thought out. I I just didn't care for it. Now, are the other games the same way? Do they have the same mechanic? Yeah. And I I can't remember off the top of my head how they changed it or improved it. But yeah, that's a series trademark. So get used to it. No, I'm telling you, it's really fun. It's funny that you <laughs> you didn't use it for your whole playthrough. <laughs> I always think it's funny when things happen like that. I got to shout out Corey because he played Gravity Rush, which is a game that we did on this podcast a long time ago. Mm-hmm. He made it more than halfway through the game without doing any upgrades to his character. Wow. He didn't realize there was a skill tree, so he didn't do any upgrades. <laughs> I'm like, dude, the game it's is boss. about to get much easier for you <laughs> once I explain this to you. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's so funny. And we should mention, too, that the different weapons, the bar was in different places. They had different speeds as far as the meter for reloading. Yeah. Again, it's just another added-on aggravation. If if they would have made them the same, I mean, it it just makes sense. Just to keep them the same, you're already having to do it. Why mix it up? I don't know. Most people probably don't feel like I do, but... No, I I don't. I, I liked it, and I liked that each weapon was different because that gives character to the weapon itself.
Well, let's get into the weapons. The weapon system is like you have four slots, but each one is specific to a type of weapon. So pistols, rifles, uh, and then like a heavy weapon and then grenades. Mm -hmm. So there's two different kinds of pistols. You have the rifles, which are the main guns you're going to use for most of the game, let's Mm -hmm. face it. And that's the hammer burst and the lancer. Now, the lancer is one of the most famous guns in video game history, let alone, again, another like trademark piece of this franchise. They'd be Uh, doomed to it. To what? Having a chainsaw at the end of the gun? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So you can use it to do like finishing moves on enemies, but. I found through my playthrough, not so much with other games I remember, but playing this game through, I rarely was able to use it to do like the fatality, let's say. Yeah. So I don't know, you had the same kind of issue? Yeah, I mean, I think there's certain enemies where it's a little easier to do it, but you have to kind of rev up the chainsaw. You can't just press it when an enemy gets to you. There are the uh, like xenomorph characters that crawl on the ceilings and on the ground. And it's actually a pretty good thing to use against them because some of them, when you shoot them, they explode. But when you use the chainsaw on them, they don't. Oh, okay. Yeah. And they, they kind of come right at you. So you don't have to shoot them and weaken them to use that. There are some enemies that can overpower you and use a chainsaw weapon of their own. So, uh, there is that aspect of the game. It can be a little dangerous to go in sometimes. But um, yeah, you have to be kind of bumping into your enemy. Sometimes it doesn't activate the way it should. It's not as smooth as, let's say, Doom is. But, uh, you know, it, it's a cool addition to the game. I, I do like it. Uh, there's nothing that I dislike about it. Nice. Well, there's something called a Nasher, which is kind of, it's basically your shotgun. Mm-hmm. And then the long shot, which is the sniper rifle, as the name implies. (laughs) And then we have a couple of special weapons. One is the Hammer of Dawn. Yeah. This is a cool weapon where you call down a satellite blast, but it can only be used at specific times. It's very contextual to the story. And this is the kind of game we should say where when you're about to go into a sniper segment, there will be a long shot sitting there for you to pick up and use. When you're about to use the Hammer of Dawn, there will be one sitting there for you to pick up and use. Yeah. So there's no, not to say there's none, but like weapon management is not necessary in this game because basically you'll just run around with your Lancer the whole game and then just pick up the Hammer of Dawn when you need to use it, right? Yep. Or a long shot if you feel like sniping some long distance enemy or if it's a segment that's designed to be using a sniper rifle. So... I found even though there's four weapon slots and one of them is for grenades, I never felt restricted by that. And it's not like there's a ton of weapons. There's only eight weapons if you don't count grenades. So, oh no, I forgot about the torque bow. That's another one. So let's say nine um, plus grenades. So it's not like you have to worry about having the right weapon at the right time because they're usually around. And the game is very versatile in that there's not a ton of strategy in what weapon you use because (laughs) most of the combat encounters are pretty similar. It's a group of, you know, these mutant looking things coming out of what's called an emergence hole. And we should say that there's a very special kind of uh, mechanic in the game where you can close an emergence hole by throwing a grenade into it, Mm -hmm. which is cool because that prevents more enemies from coming out of it. 
I mean, most of the encounters, I would call them like mid-range. So the Lancer is the best weapon for the job most of the time. And then there's these other just scenarios where it's like, oh, use a sniper rifle now. And they like give you one or use the Hammer of Dawn. Like there's a couple of moments where it's like you have to use it and there's always one available. So I think it's pretty... I don't want to say cut and dried, but that's the best way I can describe it. Like mm-hmm. as far as the weapon system goes. So what are your thoughts on that, Rich? Yeah, I mean, I completely agree. I feel like you're mainly going to use your Lancer. It's a fun weapon to use. You know, it has a nice close combat chainsaw if you do happen to need it as a last resort. And, uh, you know, the other guns you just kind of pick up along the way and just find a weapon that you have fun with. And, uh, you know, one of the weapons I probably disliked the most was the shotgun. I thought it was very ineffective in this game and didn't do a lot of damage and, you know, it's kind of slow to reload. I think the game does a really good job. Like you said, with the Hammer of Dawn, there's always one lying around in a spot when you need it. And you run into enough of them to know, okay, I need to pick one of these up right now, you know? So the, the game really lead you well in that way. And that's kind of a cool thing about the game. The game is very linear, except for some branching paths. But this was a kind of game where the environments are so creative and vast, but you always can figure out within seconds which way to go. I found myself getting stuck maybe a few times, but within two minutes I was able to figure out where to go. So the game does a great job of guiding you. And I know I'm not really talking about the weapons right now, but I think the weapons are sort of incorporated in that idea. You can actually blind fire grenades too, or blind throw grenades. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, uh, you know, that, that's kind of cool. That works out well sometimes for things that are in a closer vicinity. But, uh, yeah, the aiming of the grenades is kind of cool. It shows you where the grenade's going to land if it bounces off stuff and what the trajectory is going to be. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I really did like the weapon system in this game. Like you said, there's not a huge variety, but it's enough of a variety to be very fun. Agreed. And that brings us to another topic in which, sadly, I don't think there's a ton of variety, but again, the game kind of just gets the job done. And that's with the enemy types. Yeah. There are unfortunately very few in this first game. Mm-hmm. There's the humanoid ones, and then there's the smaller ones that kind of run at you. Mm-hmm. And then there's like variations in between. There's, you know, yeah. uh, the boomers, mm-hmm. which are kind of funny because they just go boom, <laughs> you know? And Yeah, there's uh, the guys with the rocket launchers. Yeah, which is known as the boom shot, by the way. Okay. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Gotta give it a creative name, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, So, yeah, I think that is one of the places where the game is lacking. Even though, I gotta tell you, Rich, I never felt like, oh, I wish there were more different enemies. Like, I'm getting bored with shooting just these rank-and-file dudes. I never had a problem with it, actually. Like... I definitely would criticize the game for not having a variety there, but it didn't hinder my experience, if that makes sense. Yeah. I don't know. What about you? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely obvious that there is a lack of enemies in this game. One thing I thought that was kind of strange about the game is that the locusts are a combination of 
humanoids and these things are like, if you've ever played StarCraft, like the Zerg, you know what I'm talking about? That sort mm. of uh, alien insect race. And it's kind of hard to like mesh. Why are these seemingly different types of alien beings working together? It's kind of bizarre. I mean, maybe that gets pulled out in some of the later games, but I thought it was a little bizarre um, as far as what the enemy types were. There are, you know, like you said, like basic enemies in this game, but there are other enemies that are somewhat like sub-bosses, I would say. There is the um, Berserkers, which can only be killed by the Hammer of Dawn, and uh, there's some really creative scenes where you have to get them outside because the satellite can only lock onto them out there. There are these massive giants who will one-shot you if they hit you, but they're blind and they only have a sense of hearing and smell. So you quickly learn how to roll and dodge out of the way with those guys. But uh, I think my favorite fight was with the Corpser. And it's a shame that there's only one of those in the entire game. Yeah, I enjoyed the Corpser battles i also enjoyed the one i forget what it was called but the one where you're in the kind of scrapyard and you have to shoot the pilot of the thing rather than the thing itself i thought that one was pretty cool because the it's a more wide open area than any other part of the game in a sense and you have to for the first time in the game maybe the only time in the game be a little bit more creative with where you're going to take cover yeah. Because there's so many angles of attack on you and you have to be careful. So having said that, I think we can move on to environments and graphics in this game. So this is interesting because this game came out in the era where games, as we look back on them from this time, we can criticize them for being very gray and brown for whatever reason, this was the style at the time. There was a, just a drab color palette. Now, this is kind of updated and fixed, quote unquote, with the Ultimate Edition, where they added a little bit more vibrant colors to the game. So you played the 360 version. What did you think about the graphics in general, the environments, anything, character models, color palette? What was your take on everything? I, I thought it looked simply amazing. I love nice. the environments. Um, you know, and I know it's a drab color palette, but we're talking about a war-torn and very distraught and dirty area. So, I mean, it fits. Some things I just feel like don't have to have color. I feel like earth tones are good enough, and it really fits the mood and atmosphere. Um, as far as the graphics were concerned, what I really liked about the game is... You would be outside in these open areas, then you would be inside in these much tighter areas, and it all looked fantastic. Um, I think one time you're like underground, and so you get a lot of different environments to fight in, and so you're not stuck in this this sort of merry-go-round of the same environment all the time. Uh, The game does a great job of mixing it up. You've got these different combat stages. There's one where you're driving a vehicle. There's another where you're in these mine carts. It's kind of fun. And then, you know, another scene, you're on top of a moving train. It's a nice variety and a nice blend. I'll admit, like, the vehicle stage, that was very irritating to me because you couldn't really move the turret 
as well as you would like to. But, yeah. you know, at the same time, it's good that they like to mix it up and give you different gameplay elements. So it makes the game a lot more fun. You bring up a good point with the vehicle segment. That is one of the many, many segments of this game that plays better if you're playing co-op because uh, then you can just control the turret and you don't have to worry about driving and controlling the turret. So that's one thing we should mention. As I talked about my history of this series, this game... It's perfectly fine to play it one player. I mean, you and I both did. We went through it, and I didn't have any issues with it. But your turret thing with the vehicle is a really good example of something that's better if you did it co-op. And there's many of them throughout the game. I think in the notes you mentioned branching paths, or maybe we talked about it a little already. But Mm -hmm. one of the things that also goes along with that is a co-op. And I believe, if I remember correctly... When you're doing co-op, it splits up the players in those segments. So one goes left, one goes right. And um, I think that's another way to experience different parts of the game. So Now, is the second player, is that Dom, your friend? Is it always that other character? Yeah, I believe so. Um, because the other characters who are with you are not important to the franchise, I guess I could say, you know? Yeah. And they're not with you the whole event either. So correct. Yeah. on the music <laughs> i mean i like it it fits the game you know i don't think it's anything overly extraordinary but it's still incredibly well done it's fast paced when it needs to be fast paced it's a little slower and menacing when it needs to be i like the title screen music too you know it's very yeah. like drab and doom and gloom which again fits the mood of the game so uh yeah, I have no problem with it. It's not something that really stands out to me as far as soundtracks are concerned, but uh, it's very serviceable. Yep, I agree. This is like kind of like movie music. We say this a lot. And it's also like if you go on Spotify and type in Epic Gaming soundtracks, you're going to hear music like this kind of. And I don't mean Epic the company. I mean like Epic Gaming soundtracks. <laughs> you know what I mean? The... uh Sound effects in this game, I think, are worth praise because Mm -hmm. there's a lot of good action stuff, right? Like the guns sound great. The explosions are awesome. The aliens make a squishy squirting sound when you, you know, when you kill them and they explode or whatever. You shoot their head off or whatever it is or use a grenade. So I think the sound design overall, the sound effects in this game are really good. Also, the voice acting is awesome. Oh, yeah. I don't know, man. You know, this game is so funny because it's like one of those things that's like it takes itself seriously, even though it's like the goofiest shit ever. And it just makes it so awesome. You know what I mean? (laughs) Like It's almost like a B movie from the 80s or something. I I never felt like it was goofy, though, you know? Yeah. What I'm saying is like... 
I don't know. It's like one of those video gamey things. Like, oh, like these freaking meatheads are just running around shooting aliens. Like, how stupid is this? The presentation is such that it takes itself seriously and you also take it seriously in kind because of how well done it is. Yeah, and I think that has a lot to do with the mechanics, the cover, and the movement of the characters and stuff. Oh, so you would actually take it more from a gameplay perspective. I'm taking it more from like a presentation cinematics voice acting kind of well no i mean i agree with that but i think what helps and what makes the game not feel completely silly are the gameplay mechanics i mean those those other things are are great too in addition to it but i think the gameplay is what differentiates it and make those other things a higher quality if, if that makes sense it does. So like you're saying like, all right, we're getting down to business. We got to fight now. This is serious. Yeah. Like, yeah, I got it. I got it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, no point that I feel like it was goofy and maybe I would if it wasn't so intense and uh, just so action packed and the mechanics were so awesome. That's fair. It all meshes very well together, I guess is the best way to say it. If I could walk it back a little, just uh, maybe I'm being too cerebral about it or too highfalutin about it to <laughs> to be saying stuff like that. But I'm overall in the end, I'm praising the game for holding all of this together so well. So before we get into final thoughts, I definitely want to spend some time talking about the final boss of the game and the ending of the game. So that guy, yeah. So. <laughs> The final boss is a character named Ram who, again, like you were saying, Rich, he's just kind of a deluxe version of one of the normal enemies. But he has this thing called the Krill, which is these weird like bird bat creatures that you encounter earlier in the game that are sensitive to light. So there's actually this cool sequence where you have to set off propane tanks around the environment to keep the Krill away. And it's Mm -hmm. pretty neat. But they come back in the final boss battle, and <laughs> and you're not the only one who had a hard time. Shaggy on the forum uh, had a hell of a time with Ram. I didn't, which is very uh, uncharacteristic of me because I'm usually the one who's rage quitting and having uh, a real time with the more challenging parts of our games. But somehow I got through it. I only died like three or four times before I put them away so these type of games are your wheelhouse i mean i guess so but yeah so explain to me like what were your tactics like what was working what wasn't working (sighs) man i know i played this final scene over a hundred times and thank god the checkpointing in this game is amazing we need to mention that it's so good it's true very good yeah you don't have to do a lot of backtracking at all in this game and when you get to the final boss fight If you die, you can just jump right back in there when you continue. So that is very, very nice. You know, I had the Lancer, and then I also had the uh, sniper rifle. I unloaded everything on him. Handgun, Lancer, grenade, sniper rifle, and he still didn't die. I I found a way to kind of um, bug him out, where he just stood behind a um, blockade and he couldn't move. I kind of figured that out after doing a few lookups, but I think when you bug him out like that, he can't use the krill, so I think that your shots don't really get counted because, I mean, I unloaded everything. But then you mentioned something about, well, you can't do damage to him unless the krill are not there. They're blocking everything. So I had watched another video 
earlier today. By the way, I beat this f***ing game like five minutes before we got on this call. <laughs> that is true. It took me two or three days to beat this oh, final boss. Oh my goodness. Yeah, I was up till like one thirty, two in the morning and started like at 10.30 and couldn't beat this guy. Wow. So what I learned from that video is that there is that, uh, I can't think of what the name of that weapon is, the bow and arrow. Oh, the torque bow. The torque bow. There is one over in the corner behind a post that I wasn't seeing. So instead of the sniper rifle, I got the torque bow. Well, with the torque bow, that goes through the krill. So you can shoot through the krill with that and hit him. And so I did that, you know, made sure I hit it all six times of my shot. When he got closer, I stayed behind that first barricade, and I just blind-tossed grenades. And once I was out of those, I pulled out my lancer and just blind-fired at him from the other side of that when the krill would fly around. And when he came around the other side... And I would just jump over the wall and come back into the barricade each time. And that's the way I finally finished him off. But, man, I gotta say, I mean, from the rest of the game, this is an insane difficulty spike. I mean, the rest of the game, you know, there are some tough moments that it might have taken me five or six times to beat. But this final boss at the end, even on casual, man, that's not a casual final boss at all. That's, <laughs> it was rough. I mean, because he can hit you twice and you're gone. Yeah. Wow. I mean, normally I would say like, wow, that's weird. Like, I wonder what was going on there. But like I said, Shaggy had the same exact issues going on. So, I mean, I'm not that damn bad as a gamer. (laughs) Oh, man. (laughs) (laughs) I've beaten some dumb shit, you know? So, um. Yeah, it was frustrating. Oh, I thought you were trying to say you're not as bad as Shaggy. Oh, no, no. Oh, damn. This is messed up, man. <laughs> no, I, I mean, it's weird to me that two people working on this game struggled so hard with the final boss, and then, like, me and Stubbs were like, oh, just do this. Like, it's not that... Not that we were saying it's not that hard. It's just, like, why were we able to just get through it, and you guys had such a hard time with it, but... I guess it's just one of those things. Maybe I was just so damn good in the rest of the game. It was like, we're not giving this guy enough of a challenge. Let's amp it up. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe. It's that AI, man. Yeah. (laughs) All right. So we're going to get into our final thoughts. And then we actually have something very special at the end when we're done with our final thoughts. My friend Ralph from back in New Jersey, I've been friends with him since about high school. He went to a different high school than me, but we became friends and we were in a bunch of bands together. And I happen to know that he's a Gears of War fanatic. Like (laughs) he's obsessed with the Gears of War franchise. His wife is obsessed with the Gears of War franchise. He's in a band called Please Exist with my other friend, John. And in that band, they have a bunch of songs that are about Gears of War. So (laughs) I thought it would be cool to get Ralph to do a little recording for us on some of his thoughts on the franchise. So that's how we're going to end the main segment here. But first, we'll do our final thoughts. Rich, I'll let you go first. Sure. And I just want to piggyback on what you were saying about Ralph's segment. We talked about this. You said, would you mind if I asked my friend to do this? And I said... Yeah, no problem. I think you're going to be cool. Try to fit it in the show somewhere. And uh, I've just been so busy with everything going on with my kids. 
I've had this track for about a week and I haven't listened to it, but uh, today while I was prepping for the call uh, for this last minute show we're doing right now, I put it on and I listened to it and uh, I was just so moved by what I heard. It's just fantastic. You'll hear about how this guy feels about this game and how it's touched his life and how video gaming can be something very positive, which we don't hear a lot about. And I told you, I said, man, we got to put this at the end. It's so good. I mean, I couldn't go after that. I mean, there's no way. And you were like, man, I'm, I'm really glad you feel that way because I listened to it and I was just really mesmerized by it. So I hope that everyone that listens to this sticks around to listen to what Ralph has to say about this game because it's a great listen. All right, so my final thoughts on the game. Coming into the Gears of War series for the first time, my first experience was watching the game, and the first thing I picked up on were the mechanics, the cover firing and the rolling and the how you fly into something and you back against it, and I just thought it was so cool. It was unlike anything that I had ever seen in a game. Honestly, I was really disappointed that it wasn't on the PlayStation because I had a PlayStation 2 at the time. And, uh, you know, I was like, oh, man, I really wish we had a game like this because this is cool. And it's one of the games, like I said, I bought as soon as I got a 360. Maybe even before I got my 360 because, you know, I was already doing some collecting. It's a game you can find for a few bucks almost anywhere. I just picked up a collector's edition steel box for a dollar and sixty-five cents. And I got that because A, it's cool, and B, there's like a really cool art book in it as well. And there's a little more tie-in with the story, which I think is really neat and served me well for this podcast. I thought the game was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, I mean I've got a few gripes about the game, no doubt. The major one being that difficulty spike at the end, which is completely ridiculous. And I know some of you guys don't feel that way. Obviously, it looks like a lot of us had different experiences with it. But Shaggy and myself had some problems with it. It's just ridiculous that it took me that many tries. And I consider myself a a decent gamer. I've beaten a ton of games. But I thought this was an awesome playthrough. I am so glad that I got to play this game for the first time. And I really, really enjoyed it. The environments in this game are stunning. And everything just meshes so well together. But I gotta say one thing in closing. Fellas, fellas, I got a fever. And the only prescription is more Coltrane. (laughs) The Coltrane character in this game, man, I could not get enough of that guy. He cracked me up. The coolest character in the game my only thing is I wish there was more Coltrane. And Sean, <laughs> if you don't tell me there's more Coltrane in the upcoming games, I'm not going to play any more games in this franchise. Oh, man. He's around. you, <laughs> you got to keep playing. Because if you liked this game, Gears of War 2 will blow your mind. Like, if you thought this game was amazing, wait till you play 2 and 3. I'm telling you, bro. And Coltrane has a rap at the end in the credits. <laughs> Oh, is that true? I, I don't even remember that. Oh, man, That's go awesome. back. Go back. You got to listen to the Coltrane <laughs> rap. All right. I'll have to check it out. <laughs> YouTube that, man. It's great. <laughs> All right. Well, as for my final thoughts, um, like I said, I have a really rich history with this game. It really, you know, it reminds me of Jesse. So anything like that uh, is special to me. And 
I should also note, I played the Ultimate Edition, but also went back and played some of the 360 Edition, like I was saying, and uh, I would actually recommend the 360 Edition over the Ultimate Edition. Oh, wow. And the reason is, the 360 Edition feels like something that's more broken in, if that makes sense. When you play the 360 Edition, it just feels more comfortable. The gameplay feels less stiff. I was trying to think of an analogy, and the Ultimate Edition is almost like a brand new high-end bicycle where the original 360 edition is just like your BMX bike in your garage that you can just hop on and do tricks on. Like it just feels more comfortable. So I would recommend either edition for sure is totally playable from start to finish, but I just give the, the original version a a little bit of an edge. It's a little bit grittier too. Like Mm -hmm. the ultimate edition is kind of slick and I feel like the gritty nature of the original game suits the subject matter a lot better. So having said that, I mean, I highly recommend this game. And I got to shout out Mr. Stubbs for, once again, he's just not only playing our playthrough game, but just going through the entire franchise of the <laughs> the, the <laughs> game that we played, which is so awesome. He's such an all-star uh, yeah. for all of our playthroughs lately. So shout out to Mr. Stubbs once again for doing that. Yeah, I think if you're up for it, Rich, maybe in a year or so, maybe 18 months, we should play Gears 2 and uh, go for it. I love this game. I love the whole franchise and recommend it to anybody. So with that, I'm going to turn it over to Ralph for his thoughts on the game. Hey, y'all. My name is Ralph. People in my small gaming world know me as Scissors. I was asked to talk to you about my favorite video game franchise of all time, Gears of War. Gears is a story-driven third-person cover shooter developed by Epic Games and released back in 2006 exclusively for the Xbox 360. Um, At that time, I was up to my neck in World of Warcraft, (laughs) playing pretty much exclusively on PC. I did own an original Xbox console, mostly for Halo and Halo 2, but it didn't get played very often. Right around that time, I was starting to kind of get strung out on World of Warcraft, I felt like I was wasting so much time playing it. Like uh, Kids today complain about games being too grindy. But man, you don't know what grind is until you've played World of Warcraft. Uh, Anyways, I'm sitting there one night uh, grinding WoW. In the background, I had my TV on. And um, the trailer for Gears came on. I thought it was like super intriguing. It looked brutal and mysterious as all hell. And while Marcus Phoenix looked like a a steroid-addicted <laughs> five-finger death punch fan. It was kind of counteracted by the fact that the song Mad World was playing in the trailer. I had never seen anything like it. I was like, what the hell is this game? It was cinematic, but not overly so. Like, you could tell you were still going to be shooting giant monsters with a huge assault rifle and with a chainsaw bayonet. I was like, oh, my God. Um, needless to say... Um, Halo 3 wasn't enough to get me to buy a 360, but whatever this dark, mysterious, emo meathead game is, you know, count me in. And the timing was perfect because I was looking for a way to get away from World of Warcraft anyways. Um, So I bought a 360 and got Gears when it launched. The first thing I noticed was how good the dialogue and the voice acting was. Marcus's voice, um, who was actually voiced by John DiMaggio, who does Bender in Futurama, was that of a dude who had seen some stuff go down. Once you get your squad all together, the way they interact with one another makes for some pure entertainment all by itself. 
I remember reading a quote from an Iraq war veteran about how, you know, with all of the the Call of Duty and Battlefield and Rainbow Six games that advertise realism and all of that, the one thing that they could never get right was how soldiers interacted with each other in combat and how Gears basically perfects that. But even beyond that, you can tell within five seconds of meeting a new character in Gears that they have depth and you fully believe that they have been living and they are fully immersed in this world and they've been there for some time. And they're not all poets and scholars, but they perfectly display uh, a relatable humanity. Uh, one of my favorite and most memorable moments is early on when you meet Anya for the first time. Anya is basically the line of communication between frontline soldiers and command. But um, her and Marcus both step out of these giant King Raven helicopters and they lock eyes for a second and they both kind of smile before getting interrupted by a hail of gunfire. I remember thinking to myself, like, what the hell was that about? But that's the thing that made the first game so great. All it did was introduce you to a world that made you ask a million questions. But the world itself is so luring and, and mysterious that, you know, you're compelled to seek answers to those questions like, are we on Earth? Why was I in jail? What the hell are the locusts? Why do some of them look humanoid? Why do some of them look like monkey dogs? Um, the other thing I started to notice upon making my way through the streets and cities of the campaign is just like how breathtaking the set pieces are and the environment is. Um, the developers themselves referred to their vision as uh, destroyed beauty. And that's quite literally what it is. Like it's apparent that Wherever this game is taking place, humans have been here for a long time. You can tell that this world was rich with culture and history, and now we're using those beautiful pieces of architecture as cover in an effort to not get our faces blown off. Because this game doesn't pull any punches. It's got some of the craziest gore I've ever seen in a game. Um, with that being said, the gameplay mechanics at their core, they're quite simple. When you're being shot at, you take cover. There was a game uh, on the first-gen Xbox, and maybe PS2, I can't remember. Um, it was called Kill Switch. I think that that game really influenced the developers. It was the same idea with an emphasis on using cover while in combat, which is quite a simple and realistic idea. Like You would never approach combat in real life the way you do in games like Call of Duty. This mechanic, it's easy to learn, but it's difficult to master. A prime example would be the online multiplayer. It plays very different from the laid-back single player. It's the same basic concept of using cover in combat, except, like, um, I don't know, a game where you just sat behind cover, shooting your assault rifle at heavily armored enemies while they did the same to you would probably be really boring. So players started flanking and bouncing from cover to cover with shotguns, and before you knew it, Gears became pretty much one of the highest skill tier competitive games in the world. Don't expect any mercy in gear servers. Uh, that world will eat you up just like the campaign one will. It's so hard when you first start playing to even get a kill. Players will just troll you endlessly. So yeah, so with its immersive world that has so much writing potential and its huge competitive player base, Microsoft basically gave birth to a highly successful franchise, one that is still going strong today. Uh, spawning numerous sequels. Gears of War 2 is probably my favorite out of the franchise. That was the game that really dove into character development and world building. Like, it gave Dom a lot of character depth. You guys should actually go get Carlos Ferro to speak on your thing because 
he is like the coolest guy. You can just add him on Facebook. He doesn't have like a celebrity Facebook. <laughs> he just has like a personal one. He adds anyone. He interacts with everyone all the time. And, you know, his voice acting as Dom was just so good. Gears of War 2 also introduced uh, a new online game mode called Horde, where you just hold off wave after wave of enemies for as long as you can. I thought it was a great addition as it gave Gears fans a way to connect to other Gears fans without having to go into like the highly competitive, stressful world of Versus servers. And I mean, I guess they must have done something right with that because over the years, I mean, pretty much every game has a Horde mode now. On a more personal note, though, I would like to say, too, that this franchise, I mean, quite literally, saved my life. And I know how dumb and cliche that sounds, but, like, I fell on some real dark times where it just felt like the world was swallowing me whole, and I honestly just didn't want to be a part of it anymore. But um, when things would get that bad, I just thought about the world of Gears, where Throughout the games, whenever it feels like things can't get any worse, they do. And how Marcus and Delta Squad just keep going. Because they have to. Because at the core of this game, the message is always perseverance. I've played through these games with my closest friends and my wife on multiple occasions. Not just because they are fun and they have a great co-op experience, but because every time we beat one of the Gears games, it's like a celebration that I'm here and still alive just like the humans of Planet Sarah. Um, so I guess that's it. I I want to thank Sean for reaching out to me to talk about the Gears franchise a little bit and what it means to me. And um, I'm getting pretty excited now because on November 10th, Gears Tactics launches on the Xbox, which is uh, a turn-based strategy game. It's kind of like a one-off prequel. Um, I heard it plays very similarly to XCOM. So I'm definitely going to be out of my element, but... That doesn't matter because I know it's going to be chock full of bits and pieces of lore that I'm anxious to eat up. But um, yeah, I guess that's it. Um, I hope you all enjoy your playthrough as much as I did. And uh, take care and stay safe. All right, so in October, join us for a spooky playthrough as we play the survival horror classic Fatal Frame 2 Crimson Butterfly. Now, Sean, we have jumped ahead in the series. We haven't played the first game. And the big reason, as we talked about last month, is because this one is a little bit shorter and it's got some really nice reviews. The cool thing about this game is that your weapon is not a gun. It's not a baseball bat. It's simply a camera where you're taking pictures of these poltergeists and doing damage to enemies. So it's a neat, fun mechanic, which I'm hoping is going to make for a really great October game. Sean, you've already started the game, right? Yeah, I'm actually about halfway through it. Uh, there's some really good action on the forums going on. Again, Mr. Stubbs is just killing it. And Steven Disposed Hero is on with us he played the first game first so he's actually doing he's doing a franchise <laughs> run i guess all right two all-stars on this next yeah. playthrough nice. yeah exactly um but yeah i'm i'm currently playing the game and, and i'm enjoying it a lot cool. it is really cool it's really nice to be playing a survival horror game that's on the easier side for better or for worse takes the survival out of survival horror because there's healing items everywhere but that's fine with me yeah i'm happy to hear that after this 
final boss battle. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it kind of takes the stress out of it and you're just able to enjoy the creepy factor and the scariness of the game rather than worrying about resource management. So I'm enjoying that aspect of it. And I'm excited for you to get started on it now that you finally finished <laughs> Gears of War. Yes. <laughs> As for November, we are going to revisit another franchise that we're familiar with per a past episode, and that would be the Bioshock franchise. And we're going to be playing Bioshock 2 in November. Our listeners will remember we played Bioshock a little over a year ago, and we had a really great show for that episode for that game, and I'm really looking forward to getting back into the franchise. I think Bioshock 2 is highly and severely underrated game, so I'm looking forward to replaying it and seeing if I can back that up, either validating or changing my opinion on that, so... How about you, Rich? You excited for that one? I know both of us really enjoyed the first game. I'm very, very excited about this game. And actually, in November, it would have been two years exactly to when we played the first game. So it has been two years, uh, which is sort of like a little 24-month anniversary for us. Two years ago was the first time I had played a Bioshock game. I've really never been a fan of first-person shooters. I've always preferred third. But it really made me change the way that I felt about first-person shooters. And since then, we've played Doom. And, uh, you know, I've just really enjoyed myself. So playing Bioshock 2 in November is just going to be an awesome experience.
And with that, we'll wrap up another episode. Thank you as always for listening and a special thanks to our participants and a very special thanks to Ralph for recording his thoughts on the Gears franchise. In October, we're continuing our tradition of playing a spooky-themed title with Tecmo's cult classic Ghost Photography Simulator Fatal Frame 2 Crimson Butterfly. Be sure to log on to the forums at rfgeneration.com to join that playthrough, and we'll see you next time on the Playcast. Basketball. Bow. Blah, blah, bling, blame